This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles' breakup. Welcome to Episode 8. Number 8 is a power-packed episode of Maneuvers and Negotiations. John and Yoko quit heroin. Paul becomes a dad. John, George, and Ringo hang out with Bob Dylan. The Beatles reject cold turkey as a single. And John tries to split the baby in the infamous 4442 meeting and calls Lennon-McCartney a myth. Join us on this roller coaster journey as John and Paul begin to spiral toward divorce. approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of the breakup. That if I ran away from you, that you would want me to. But I got a big surprise. Oh, 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 you. Could find better things to do. So we're picking up at the end of August after the completion of Abbey Road. We are now finally getting to the critical point in our story. Yay! Yay. Yes, all right, bring it on. I know it's taken us a while to get here, but we had to lay the groundwork for what comes next because it's all connected. All the interpersonal issues we outlined in the previous seven episodes are now playing out and coming to a head. This period, after they complete an album or project, was, according to John Lennon, always a danger zone for the Beatles. It was a period when they felt insecure and uncertain about their future, which is probably why McCartney was always quick to spearhead new plans for them, and why Brian Epstein's present was so beneficial, because it was reassuring for them to know there was someone planning for their future together. But at this point, Brian's gone, and their foundation is starting to crumble. They can't agree on management, they're surrounded by business problems, and... Most importantly, they don't have another project on the calendar. But on the other hand, Abbey Road was apparently a fairly good experience for them. And it produced another high watermark album. Plus, they still had Get Back in the Can. So even though George and Ringo have already threatened to quit the band, and the Beatles have been openly discussing the possibility of breaking up all year, at this time... They did have some momentum, and none of the bandmates were giving serious indication that they were planning to leave. In fact, in 1980, John and Yoko admitted they had no plans to leave. 
And similarly, Ringo has said that he didn't think Abbey Road was the end. And even in 1970, George Harrison is advocating for the Beatles to continue. Point being, the breakup was not inevitable. And perhaps less intentional than we've been led to believe. So that's the scenario. They've had this mostly positive experience with Abbey Road. John and Paul are still pitching ideas for the future of the band. And yet, less than a month later, Lennon dramatically declares he wants a divorce. So our challenge now is to go through the events of this four-week period to determine why things escalated so quickly, what triggered John's statement, and how things went off the track so severely. Because ultimately, this was the statement that set in motion what was to become the breakup of the Beatles. So understanding what motivated it and what purpose it served is crucial to determining whether this was the desired outcome or simply a high stakes game that spun out of control. All right, so this is a critical few weeks, and we're just going to go through the events uh, one by one, discuss each one a little bit, and um, I'll give you a real quick overview of what those events are so that you are ready. All right, on August 25th, John and Yoko go through withdrawal of heroin, and then sometime in the next week, John writes cold turkey. On August 28th, Paul and Linda have their first child together, Mary McCartney. Um, On August 29th, Through the 31st, that weekend is the Isle of Wight Festival, which John, George, and Ringo attend together with their wives. They meet up to watch Bob Dylan perform. On September 1st, Dylan travels back to London to hang out at Tittenhurst, where um, John tries to get Dylan to play piano on his cold turkey demo, which Dylan declines. John also says that both he and Dylan are on heroin at that point. Um, On September 8th or 9th, it's still sort of up for debate. The Beatles have a board meeting, um, which is now being referred to as either the tape meeting or the 444 meeting. Um, This is the one that Mark Lewison is trotting out as the tape that changes everything. Um, We're going to talk about that. On September 13th, John and Yoko travel to Toronto to perform as a Plastic Ono band with friends Um, which they later put out as a record called Life, Peace in Toronto. On September 19th, John and Paul lose control of Northern Songs, their publishing company. And then on September 20th, the Beatles sign a new contract drawn up by Alan Klein, and John announces that he wants a divorce. And finally, on September 23rd, three days after that announcement, John gives an interview to Barry Miles, Uh, We'd like to talk about that interview because we feel that it's very illuminating in terms of John's thought process and his emotions during this time. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it almost gives a retrospective look at the way John was feeling. You know, it sort of almost clarifies his thinking. So we think it's worth diving into this somewhat shocking thing is that as we've gone through them, they actually paint a pretty clear picture. Right. Honestly, like, yeah, they, you know, when we first took a look at them, we're like, I don't see how these, all these things connect. Well, I think we figured out that there was a through line 
And it's just shocking to us that there's been a lot of Beatles books written. And, you know, when we start to lay out these events and go through some of the emotions that might have been driving the behaviors, it starts to make sense. It's worth thinking through the impact that the different events have and how they led to the behavior that um, basically creates the destruction of the Beatles. That, that's right. And I think it's something that you you don't really get when you just sort of limit all of these events into just sort of like a black and white summary in three or four sentences. But when you actually piece together all of these events, you start to see that there's a domino effect. So before we get into the events, I just want to say one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Something to keep in mind is that we now have Paul's uh, testimony about how he was feeling at the time. We all know the story that Paul has shared about his depression surrounding the Beatles breakup and everyone has embraced that story. Yeah. They love that story. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. And it's which is which is great. I I'm glad that we all care about Paul's feelings suddenly, but um, it's kind of become a monster. Like it's it's sort of taken over his entire biography. It's like the only thing that anybody talks about anymore. Yes, is that Paul was devastated by the breakup of the Beatles. But my point is, you know, he shared those feelings with the public like 25 years after the fact. You know, it was a very long time before he opened up to anybody about the depression that he went through. And it was, in fact, after John's death. So I just want people to be mindful of that. You know, Um, we don't have the equivalent because John didn't have to ever deal with Paul getting murdered. And he'd never had to deal with people hounding him for like, why did you, why were you such a dick to Paul? How could you say these things? Why could you, you know, be so mean? Paul must have hated you. He never had to go through that. So we don't have a 50-year-old John's recollections of his dead best friend. Okay? Right. Well, just to add to that, I mean, the implications of that. Yes, please. I think the tendency is to be much more generous to be much more open with your feelings, to be much more loving. You know, all these things that you get from Paul as a 55-year-old explaining his feelings, we don't have that from John, right? Exactly. So if if people were saying to a a grown-ass John, you were so awful and you broke up the Beatles and you didn't care and you devastated him and how could you do that? I'm pretty sure John would say, hey, listen, it was awful for me, too. I went into primal scream therapy. Are you fucking kidding yeah, me? Yeah. Like, what crack are you smoking that you think I just waltzed through that breakup like it was nothing? Right. Give me a break. Of course it hurt me. It was the worst time of my life. Right. I mean, John might say, look, my my nervous breakdown started in the spring of 1968. Exactly. So, again, just something to keep in mind. Right. You know. So it's not an equivalence. We don't have that. Yeah. Point being, due to Paul's retrospective recollections, there may now be too much emphasis put on Paul's feelings of grief over the band's demise and not enough consideration of his other emotions. Right. 
like the ones that he described, such as anger and, you know, frustration over Alan Klein and anxiety and and ambition. Yeah. Yeah. And pride and his own creative drive as well. Exactly. Which nobody talks about. Right. And at the same time, the traditional narrative underestimates John's feelings, especially his insecurity and his emotional investment in the group and in Paul. Right. And consequently, they aren't treated as real human beings with a full range of emotions. But they are. And they're both going to sometimes feel vulnerable and sometimes feel cocky. Yeah. So, you know, to understand the story properly, I think we need to think past the stereotypes and focus on what was being said and done at the time. One thing we need to bear in mind is that Paul, for so many years, was the villain of this story. He was the cold, hard-hearted guy who only cared about money, didn't care for his brothers, and just turned out to be a money-grubbing piece of shit, you know, and... He broke up the Beatles because of his giant ego. Right. So that's why Paul tells this story later on. He's reacting to that yes. image of him that had come as a result of the breakup. That, that's exactly right. So he, he's saying, listen, I hurt. I was hurting. I was just doing it privately. Thank you very much. And as you said, he was hiding his feelings. He was keeping them private. But that actually applies to the group he was keeping them private from them as well and by all accounts you know everybody involved seemed to have this impression that paul was in control of everything at the top of his Mm -hmm. powers this is what connelly says that paul's an egomaniac but he says that paul has reason to be because the thing is paul is very productive at this time too and so you know i think when we we look at this story and we look at some of john and george's actions it's like wow these guys are just awful to him but that's not what they're seeing they're seeing a guy who seems like he is incredibly powerful and every time they talk about him it's like david and goliath it's like they're taking pot shots at him and and for from us we're like wow that's so mean how could you say such callous things about your buddy or whatever but they think paul is invincible they're like yeah he's Teflon. why does he need accolades he doesn't need us to say his songs are great everybody fucking says that. that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. all anybody ever says and he knows it and he walks around thinking he's the best and you know and we have evidence to suggest this is how john felt like it's interesting because in some ways the story has been so skewed now from paul admitting the fact that he had feelings that now it's become Paul is just a heartbroken mess that can't live without the Beatles. Um, who don't like him. Who, do, who don't like yes, him. Yes, exactly. Right? Who don't like him and are happy to be mean to him. And we have this other story where John was finished and disinterested and not into the Beatles. Whereas when we actually look at what John says during this period, he's very open about the fact that he didn't feel strong enough to fight, that he's given up, that, you know, he was feeling insecure. So John is feeling more insecure than I think the story traditionally suggests. And Paul is actually feeling insecure, but he doesn't look that way. In fact, we just did an interview the other day with somebody who was around at the time. And again, her description of Paul was in control of everything. And again, I do think that that makes you understand John and George a little bit more when you think that. Right, right. And it's not that, you know, this isn't a way for us to let John and George off the hook. And we're not trying to 
twist the information that so that so that they're more sympathetic to us this is the actual evidence that we have this is what we actually know and again i i i feel like can you know contemporary authors don't put that into the correct perspective right Right. They almost don't contextualize it properly. And they right. almost take this information that we've got now. I've seen, you know, Doggett did that. He actually took... Oh, yeah, he's the worst. He took a bunch of stuff that Paul said in the past 20 years about John. So he's talking about his murdered bandmate. And then took John's kind of like Len remembers comments to create a... His a yeah, yeah. His angriest, bitterest... <laughs> profile of what John thought about Paul and it's just ridiculous. That's not apples to apples. Right. So we're trying to set the stage that this is how they see each other. John later says that I was done and that's the baggage that the audience is bringing to the situation. However, it does not bear out. Right. Because I think that particular information is like, you know, fruit from a poison tree. That is fruit from a bitter breakup tree, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 going to be you know uh, sour grapes to extend the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're asking everyone to let go of the baggage that we know now. We also have to understand that Paul was a force to be reckoned with. Right, he's not just feeling depressed and and pitiful. He's angry. Right, Paul's anger is ignored but it is very much present when you dig into things paul is not allowed to be angry in the beatles story the reason we are specifically flagging this issue is that for the story to make sense we need to get beyond the trope of paul being desperate and appreciate his power as an adversary and his confidence in his own artistry at this time and that's important because a lot of john's actions during this time are directed at a person he sees as pig-headed, in control of everything, right. stubborn, controlling, domineering, yes. and, and someone who doesn't care about him and is insensitive. And so when you realize this, that John's actions make a little bit more sense. All right, so the first event we're going to talk about is John and Yoko going cold turkey from their heroin habit. And we know that uh, John tied himself to a chair, or he asked Yoko to tie him to a chair. I mean, it, it sounds pretty brutal. And the thing about this is that if that's what they're going through, these guys were pretty addicted. Yoko kind of downplays it and says, well, we were just sniffing. I don't think we took it properly, you know, all this kind of thing. But they did have a heroin addict who was living with them. And then the fact that they have to go through this. If they're, if they're withdrawing from heroin, then they're addicted to heroin. Yes, you know? yes, that's the point. But if they're, if they're having to go through withdrawal, if John has to tie, tie himself to a chair, they are addicted. Like yeah. It sounds like they probably waited until the Abbey Road was done to go through this because nobody wants to be going through this when you have to be focusing on work. But the thing about that is it means cold turkey is probably a deeply personal song. Like if this was really awful and this was something that was really hard for John, it probably means that all of those emotions are baked into that song, too. Anybody who has tried to kick anything and failed at it can tell you, every time you fail at it, it's a blow to your self-esteem. So 
I can imagine also like trying to quit heroin and then like relapsing five days later, you know, must, especially after you've gone through all the turmoil and all the pain and all the effort to kick it. Because clearly they don't want to be on heroin, you know? And like, what a waste, you know, it's like you made all that effort and then you, and then you're back on it. You know, I would be beating myself up. Oh yeah. Just think that you're a loser. You have no self-control that, you know, you know, those kinds of things would be circling through your mind. Things that John probably thinks anyway about himself. Right. Right. Like we know that John, from his account, you know, has a lot of negative self-talk. And so this, yeah, failing at something like this that you don't want to be on. I mean, it just sounds like a vicious cycle. You know, he says they're taking heroin for the pain and then uh, they don't want to be on it, but it's painful to get off it. So, and then the interesting thing is, is that, you know, they're doing some good work. You know, they've just finished Abbey Road and John's songs are fantastic on it. And, and they've had the, the peace effort so far. Give us a chance. And- yeah. So they've, they've had some real wins this year. But at the same time, you know, this is a real low too. Not not in terms of, I'm not judging John in terms of this is a low in terms of behavior. I mean, this would have... Yeah, yeah, in this terms is, of his character. Yeah. The, the, this is like, in terms of experiences, this would have been very, very difficult for him. You know, the the evidence that we have is John talks about being on it when Dylan visits him on the first. He talks about them both being on junk. So um, Within five or six days. Yeah, within five or six days. At the most. So cold turkey is probably written in a rush of sobriety. Yep. And um, that would probably give him, John, probably a rush of confidence, I would imagine. Well, I think so. You know, you're right. Like it's probably a period where he's victorious because he's gotten through it and Mm -hmm. he's able to detail it. Like it kind of seems like to me, like to to memorialize it is almost to make it meaningful. Like I had to go through that, you know, for this song and this makes it all worth it. And, you know, and and he deserves to do that. And that is a victory. Also the fact that he feels clear and is able to write probably felt good too you know like you said a a moment of clarity of victory of I'm going to write this and he really likes it clearly and it's sharing this experience with the world he offers it to the Beatles first and we think that it probably holds a lot of significance to him it's not just another song and they rejected. And that's one of the frustrating things is that we have neither a date nor any details about under what circumstances the Beatles rejected that song. Or how we they rejected that, it. Yeah. Uh, that the Paul and, and George said no. John talks about this a couple of times. He talks about the fact that he offered it to the Beatles, that he wanted to do it as a single. Yeah. And he was excited so to do it. It definitely happened. It definitely happened. Yeah. And, and it's corroborated by the other Beatles, too. Like, the, right. they said no. Yes. So he definitely wanted to do it. And um, he gives a couple of excuses. He says, well, they, you know, they just, you know. They didn't have time or they didn't. You it wasn't know. the timing wasn't right or, you know. They, yeah, they weren't ready. And then I've heard that the subject, and maybe this is just in books where they write about the fact that the, the other Beatles didn't feel like the subject was appropriate for a Beatles song, but I, I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. We don't have any quotes about that. I think that's kind of just like author speculation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's kind of like, um, 
kind of educated speculation, you know. Right. But, like, but, but still, speculation. Right. I mean, I guess they're thinking, well, why? it's a cool song. Why would Paul and George have said no to it? Um, certainly, I don't... Well, I, I, I actually agree on both points. I think it's a cool song. It's a great song. And I also agree that it shouldn't be a Beatles song. First of all, it's like top five John Lennon singles. Yeah. Top five of his of his post Beatles career. Yeah. As in it's a it's a good thing that he, you know, that that it's, really it's a great it was thing ideal that, for that, him. that he had it yeah. to kick off his solo career because like I said, it's one of his strongest singles. Here's my question. If if John was done with the Beatles, then why did he take his strongest song and offer it to the Beatles? Right. Meaning like if I'm John and I finally come up with a an A side, that's on par with a Beatles single. Yes, and you right? and you have this master plan to be leading. And I'm dying to break out of the Beatles and go solo. <laughs> Why yeah. the fuck would I offer it to the Beatles? I'd be like, finally, okay, I'm going single. Yes. I'm going solo with this. This is my chance. It might not hit number one, but it's gonna. It's for sure gonna get up there. It's gonna get in the top ten, which it did. Yes, and this is this is my you know? big stepping stone. Like this is this is the opportunity's right. I'm I'm right. clean. I have a song, you know, I want to leave, but no, he, right. he offers it to the Beatles and then complains forever more about the fact that he wanted to do it they, with them. Th that's right. He's like, oh, I had to do the solo. God damn it. It's like, that would be plan A if you're so hot to trot to get out there and right. be on your own, but you're not. Right. You're definitely not. Right. And again, he says this constantly, like I wanted to do it with them, but those those assholes wouldn't do my song. So I was like, fine, I'll do it on my own. Right. You know, Paul had been on this fucking song. It would be number one, that piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. Whose help I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> this is really good support. I think he was excited. Like you said that, Hey, I have a super hot song that now I can lead. And then he would have been hurt that they rejected it and angry. Yep. Moving forward. Yep. Yeah. We also think it's been underplayed as an important element in this period because we think this song probably holds greater significance than the average John song because it's based on a really hard personal experience. The other point is that we have this information that John and Yoko went through cold turkey and that for some we know that they're back on it, or at least John is back on it as of the first of September, and just that that if they're continually on heroin for the next month, they're not emotionally stable. You know, it, it, I don't know why when people are looking at this period, they always act like John is of sound mind when making all these decisions. Because, yeah. you know, generally when you're battling with a heroin addiction and trying to get off it, it's not when you're making super clear, fresh, um, well thought out decisions. It means you're reactive. You're sort of going through a roller coaster of emotions, probably. One of the things that we didn't talk about in the last episode was Yoko's pregnancy. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to note that, like, she is pregnant at this time. I can't imagine how she kept the baby doing this. 
Well, she loses the baby the next month. So, um, I'm not really sure either. I, I have no idea what a doctor at the time would even advise. I don't know. Well, that's the thing is they didn't go to the hospital to do this. You know, they did this themselves because they were probably afraid of being arrested judged. or judged or, you know. I think what's interesting, too, is that they do this without any of the other Beatles. Like, not that, you know, they would all be there to help them. It's just like this is something that they're going through. Um, and it's separate from the other Beatles. Like, I don't think that they're not supportive. I'm sure they'd love to know that John was getting off heroin, but they're not part of this experience. Well, the here's song. the thing is, I don't even know. I, I'm not even sure if they are aware that Yoko's pregnant at that point. That's a, that's a murky thing also. Well, or, or they probably knew at some point, but we don't know at what point they figured it out. Well, so the the only reason I bring that up is, you know, a couple days after John and Yoko go cold turkey from the heroin, Paul has his first baby. Like, he has a healthy baby. So I just wonder, like, when we talk about things that separate John and Paul, competitiveness between John and Paul, we talk about competitiveness between the couples of John and Yoko versus Paul and Linda, mm -hmm. you know, John is always, he makes a really big deal about like, we are the freaks and you guys are the normies, yeah, you know, like straights. that type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're exactly. You're the straights. And he has a lot of aggression about that. Yeah. The conservative, you know, the way he talks about it is the fact that they're so straight, they can't be artists and they can't be, you know. Right, they can't be artists because they carried a baby to term. How much of that is just resentment and jealousy? Well, you know what I mean? again, they may have seen this as a really difficult thing that then they fail at because they relapse within days. Mm -hmm. And John and Yoko may be having some, neg like, really, they may feel really badly at this time. And that's what we're trying to do is trace, like, what's going on in the different mindsets. And you know, just thinking through what they're going through, they may be feeling like very frustrated. Like as we as we said, like we you know we empathize with that. It's like we we've, we've all had personal failings, and we've all had things about ourselves that we wanted to change that we've probably failed at, and that it made us feel bad. You know. And I don't judge John and Yoko. Like I don't see this as a bad thing. I just think that it's an important thing in this period to recognize that they're doing. And that would make them feel badly. That's right. And sort of wondering, like, you know, apart from, like, us judging them or whatever, which we don't, we're not doing, we don't need to do. I'm saying, like, are, are they judging themselves and feeling bad about themselves? That's right. And if so, are they projecting that onto That's right. Paul and Linda? Is that going to feed into John's resentment? Yeah. And th that really brings us to our next important date, which is, you know, August 28th. This is Paul and Linda's first child together. So this is a major event for both of them, obviously. But, you know, this is Paul's first child being born. You know, it's going to be it's going to be a big deal for him. Well, and, and we know we kind of know it's an issue for John moving forward. I mean, you know, how much of an issue it is, is, I guess, up for debate. We have evidence that it, it bothered him, that he saw it as like a wedge between him and Paul. And, you know, he 
he he sort of displayed jealousy over the years um, about Paul and his children and also about Paul and John's children. This is one thing that is absolutely, I've never, ever seen written anywhere. I have never, ever seen it brought up. Well, of course you haven't because it's one of the most interesting parts of their dynamic. So why would it be discussed? (laughs) What did Paul having a family or his first child mean to the rest of the Beatles. You know, it's kind of like understood that, okay, yes, Paul always wanted a family. So obviously this impacted him and this would have changed his mindset a little bit. Like he does give an interview like a couple of weeks later that we'll, we'll talk about where he actually says that, you know, it hasn't changed him that much. Like he's still ambitious. <laughs> I, I think what you're referring to is, yes, John does make comments about the family dynamic over the years in, in, various interviews but specifically in there's a 1971 interview in say regis where you know he talks about paul and family and him it does give us some some background or some insight into the fact that in some ways it is he is competitive you know and he tends to position paul and linda we just talked about this but he does tend to position them as square and there's actually no reason to call them square because they are square in no way whatsoever except for the fact that they are sort of a nuclear family you know i mean they're not totally and that she's yeah. a divorcee well, she, they, well, but, but aren't john and yoko like why why are they non-nuclear i don't understand are they in a uh, are they polyamorous or something like i don't know <laughs> just like how are they how are they not exactly the same well, in 1971, and, and as you mentioned in the St. Regis interview, he basically says that Paul chose me over his family in 1961, yes. but now in 1969, you know, he chose the family over me. In 1976 yeah. or whatever, he says that he suspects his own son would prefer to have Paul as a father as opposed to John. Right, but he got stuck with John. I mean, well, that's quite it, a bombshell to drop. And by the way, quite quite a thing to hang on your kid. Julia's only like, yeah, what, like 12 true. years old at that time? I know. And I want to just separate these two issues because they're a little bit different in that, you know, that John is competitive with Paul and he knows that Paul is good with kids. And now Paul has a family and, you know, is probably going to be like the perfect father, you know, John may be thinking um, and do something better than him if he's feeling badly about the situation with Julian at this point. So that's one kind of a resentment competitiveness. So that's kind of them as fathers and as men in the world. Whereas the other situation is John is actually competitive with Paul's family, you know, in terms of when for he Paul's talks, attention, for Paul's attention. So when he tells the story in St. Regis, he's talking about the fact that the Beatles broke up and then he brings in family. And uh, as you just said, he talks about the fact that when the Beatles really, really took off was when Paul chose him over his father's influence over the family and that you know, that he seems to have, the problem seems to be that Paul chose in 69 family over him. And so it's a major, it's a pretty big deal that Paul has. And again, we don't think, I don't think that necessarily John is logically thinking this through. I think these are just like emotions and thoughts playing in his background. And it's enough that he can articulate it in a very 
rambly, disjointed way in an interview, and even the interviewer is confused about why he needs to hear a story about Paul's family when asked about the breakup. So it is a big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal that that he's that he's got married now. Right. And so, you know, again, that this has to be factored into this period that John's gone through heroin withdrawal. He's written this really highly personal song. Meanwhile, Paul's going through some a very different experience. You know, these are both very emotional issues for them and they're very different experiences that they're having at the same time, you know? I mean, they must feel like they're in different worlds now. next thing we're going to talk about is the Isle of Wight Festival. Right, where John and Yoko, George and Patty, and Ringo and Maureen all go to the festival uh, to see Dylan perform. Yeah, they meet up at the festival to see Dylan. Paul and Linda are probably still at the hospital at this point. Like, you know, the festival starts on the 29th and Mary's born on the 28th. So, yeah. like, they're literally probably still recovering at this point. So, I mean, Paul is out of pocket to begin with, but it, it still seems that there is a little bit of a click developing with the three Beatles. Yeah, it, it's interesting because there has been this three-to-one scenario since whenever that was, since, since May. About Klein. You know, yeah, about Klein. So there already has been this split and this division, business-wise. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you know, we know that Paul worked closely with George and Ringo. Right. Over the summer, you know, they all got recording. along very well. Yeah, exactly, when, when recording Abbey Road. Um, so there was a certain camaraderie between them. And John and Yoko seemed to be doing their own thing. Like we've just discussed, they, you know, they were on heroin. They just detoxed on their own. So I think that this may be the beginning of an emotional, personal click. You know, like they had, yeah. clearly these guys are all great friends. So I don't want to suggest that this is just the new formation of it. But all of a sudden, like you said, Paul is out of pocket and sort of out of pocket for good right now in that he's just had his first child. And you see this sort of social group of John, George and Ringo and their wives hanging out, you know? So this is sort of solidifying this clique. I, I think one thing that's interesting is that John and Yoko are actually spending time with the other Beatles and their, their mates, which is a bit different. We know that George yes. did not like Yoko's presence and he was pretty hostile to her in the studio. And so th it's kind of interesting to me that they're all yeah, socializing. Yes, that's socializing. A, that's a really good point because I don't think they had done a lot of socializing up to that point. They right, had certainly done some. They, they had certainly done some because you know there there's footage of John and Yoko at like a fashion show of Patty's in '68. Like she, he did 
you know, John did yeah, take her yeah, to yeah, a yeah. few Beatle-related things. I mean, for that but, matter, there's, you know, John and Yoko and Paul all triple dating at the Yellow Submarine premiere. So, I mean, they, yeah. they, you know, they did go out occasionally from time to time in whatever configurations. But, yes, I, I don't think, by and large, John and Yoko were socializing a ton. The other Beatles are not at the Dick premiere or the Black well, Bag it's true. It's true. And even, you know, we just talked about cold turkey that there's no Beatles. There's no other Beatles that are kind of supporting them or coming by or anything. You know, they're, they're pretty fractured at yeah. this point socially. Um, but especially I think what's interesting is that George, you know, was pretty clear. We even know that the, the crazy cookie story, the biscuit story <laughs> is from the Abbey Road period. And certainly nobody was a fan of Yoko having her bed there. Um, so I just wonder if this is kind of like a turning point for George, where he's kind of like, okay, fine, you know, outside of the studio, I'm fine. Yeah. With Yoko. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of like a rebonding between John and George. Yeah, I could see that. Where having their wives around and being social is a little burying the hatchet. Attention. Yeah. 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 Buries yeah. the hatch. I I just wonder if this made John feel a little closer to the other two, he would have felt maybe out of the loop yeah. for, for Abbey Road coming in and they're all working well together. So if he feels like he's a little bit odd man out with Yoko and then they go on this weekend, that might have strengthened John's, you know, belief that yeah, he had this team behind him, you know, not just with Klein, but socially too. Right. And, and well, if I'm John and I'm trying to strengthen my position within the Beatles, Yep. It's a no-brainer yep. to go and and take it out of the studio, take it out of the boardroom, go to some neutral territory and just do something fun and relaxing and and have social time with them. Right. And apparently Dylan came after the fest after the um, concert, Dylan came and they gave him the Abbey Road. You know, they're all proud they gave him the Abbey Road album. They played it. And so, you know, they're kind of celebrating the 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 what they just made together and and showing it off to Dylan, which kind of makes it sad to me that Paul's not there. So after they come back from the Isle of White, um, the next event that we've got is Dylan visiting John at Tittenhurst. Uh, I guess that uh, George and Dylan head over and they spend some time with John. Two things: one, we get the information from John based on his recollections that they were both on junk. So we have, I guess, some information that John was back on heroin at this point. And yeah. two, he wants to get Dylan recorded on his demo for Cold Turkey. There's a, there's a fun little bit in One Remembers where he talks about it. Jan Winter asks, when was the last time you saw Bob? And John says, he came to our house with George after the Isle of Wight and when I had written Cold Turkey. Ono says, and his wife. Lennon says, <laughs> I was just trying to get him to record. We had just put him on piano for Cold Turkey to make a rough tape, but his wife was pregnant or something and they left. <laughs> <laughs> As you do when you have a pregnant wife. Like, what, did she, takes... she go to labor? Like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> He's calmed down a lot now. I just remember before that we were both in shades and both on fucking junk. 
and all these freaks around us and Ginsburg and all those people. I was anxious as shit. We were in London when he came. <laughs> okay. So the heroin thing is really important, you know, so that's part of our story at this point. We just discussed the fact that they had gone cold turkey. So now we have one piece of support that he's back on it by the first of uh, September, right? Yeah. But the second point, why why do you think that the that he wants to get Dylan onto his demo? Well, I think it's a a, a bit of a flex, for, you know, in terms of if he's bringing this tape to Paul to propose it as a Beatles single. I mean, definitely Dylan's going to give it some heft. He's getting another mm -hmm. guy in his camp here. It's, it's yeah. Everyone's behind it. It's going to be the hot thing. The sad part is that Dylan doesn't do it. So that <laughs> that plan. I mean, it's right, sort of a right. hair harebrained plan anyway. But there is something important here: is that he doesn't want to get Dylan on the record. The telling thing to me is he wants to get Dylan on the demo. So who's Ex the demo for? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, I mean, that tells us who the audience is. Right. That's what I was going to say. It tells us two things. One, it tells us that he hasn't pitched it to Paul yet. Because yeah. if if he had, if Paul had already rejected it, then why is John making a demo for himself with Dylan on it? You know, like, <laughs> right. who, who is he going to play for the Plastic Ono Band? Is he going to play it for Yoko? Like, she's sitting right there. So who accompanies Dylan? George. So George is pretty aware of this song too. So. Well, that was my that was my next thought too is that he said that they were together, which yeah. means presumably George's it would co-sign it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that gives us information about who rejected the song. Right, right, cuz it's always sort of assumed that they all rejected or that Paul and George rejected, but this kind of makes it sound more like it's just Paul saying no. Like Paul just used his veto power and was like, nope. <laughs> not Beatles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't know if John George liked it or not, but you know, if he's around, he certainly didn't poo poo it at that point. You know? Well, and it could also be a matter of Paul vetoes it. And then George goes, actually, John, yeah, I agree with Paul. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is not something he would say around John and Dylan. Well, I agree. But yeah, so so the fact that he's trying to get that's it's hilarious to me. He wants Dylan on his demo. So, you know, it'd be one thing if he wanted Dylan on the actual end record, you know, because then it's for the public. It's like, look how cool I am and my song and I've got Dylan on it. But the the fact that he's just wants him on the demo, yeah, or like means that he Beatles and Dylan for the first time, you know, collaboration, right, 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 exactly. That would have been big news. But yeah. no, no, this is just for the demo, and the demo is just for the Beatles. Clearly, having Dylan on there is meant to impress, like you said. It's it's kind of stacking the deck, right? Um, in for the song to make the song seem important and great. And I just wonder if the using Dylan is um meant to provoke paul a little bit oh you know sure like, absolutely it's to prove something to paul that no doubt no doubt about yeah. that well first of all we know he has something to prove because we know that he complains about you know not being strong enough to fight for his songs and like 
you know, he, uh, Paul bulldozed him for so many years and he got all the A-sides because John was too weak and all this type of stuff. Do I think there is an element of John and he, maybe even George like trying to stick it to Paul by going with Dylan? Yes, I do. In some ways, this is a repeat of George showing up with Eric Clapton, right? For while my, it's like he he wanted them to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, so he gets Eric. You know, well now now John's trying to do the same thing with, but weirdly just for the demo, for you know. Well, because it's a one off. They can't work together. I know. And apparently know. they couldn't even work together for to jam one fucking song. You know, because of the pregnant wife. But the funny thing is John admits it. That's the hilarious thing about John. And then the amazing thing about John. Yes, yeah, He kind true. of always confess, confesses all this stuff. Yeah, he tells on himself a lot. He's funny. <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah, and, and by the way, so I just want to mention this just in case, just just for the sake of enriching this conversation about Dylan, further along in that Lennon Remembers interview, um, Wenner asks him about when Dylan came over to London in 1966 to film Don't Look Back, and apparently he invited John. Maybe their paths just crossed, or for whatever reason. So they made a tape. They made a film of them in the car. It's not that long, or whatever. So anyway, so Wenner is asking him about that, and John says he's never seen it, and he says. He just wanted me to be in the film. I thought, why? What? He's going to put me down. I went all through this terrible thing. <laughs> in the film, I'm just blabbing off and commenting all the time like you do when you're very high or stoned. I'd been up all night. We were being smart, Alex. It's terrible. But it was his scene. That was a problem for me. It was his movie. I was on his territory. That's why I was so nervous. I was on his session. And this is like the the second to last time he's seen Dylan, right? So you know, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Is how defensive and paranoid John is. How he only feels strong when he's completely surrounded and on his own territory. Yes, and he and he literally says like I was on his territory, and it made me nervous, and I didn't like it. And I and yeah. I and I thought he was gonna like play me for a fool and make me look like an asshole right. well i mean and and exactly that's that's probably john's mindset a lot of the time like who's how's this person gonna screw me over take advantage make me less strong you know yeah yeah oh my god how he and paul were ever partners for i mean that's i you know sometimes i think that too and they must there must have been some really like safe warm Center I think so. for them. I was thinking. I was just thinking that too when I said that. That how how close and deep they must have been for John, who's that paranoid, to feel completely safe with him being his partner. Yep. I mean, it, it's 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 sweet and it's sad actually mm -hmm. that we've got the world's two most competitive men being a hundred percent trusting each other until they didn't. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just kind of hard to maintain, especially like, you know, as they grew up and it's harder to stay close to it. And, you know, and again, it, we're always like, why is John always harping on the fact that they didn't live together anymore? You exactly. Know, it's like, I was why, thinking that. Yeah. Why is that so important? And, and like, I think that is why it's so important, because he needs physical closeness to, to feel reassured. secure. Yeah. Yes. 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 To, to see the look on 
his face to be reminded mm-hmm. that he can trust them. Yeah, because his mind clearly is able to spin very fast, very, you know, yeah, quickly. So John trying to get Dylan onto cold turkey clearly reflects how important the song is to him, but also how important it is that he brings his strongest presentation to Paul. It's something worthy of an A-side. Our perspective is that cold turkey impacts his reactions for the next few weeks, few months, because um, it's a deeply personal and meaningful song to him. And it might seem like we're reading a lot into that one song, except for the fact that we think that this is an issue that has happened over the past few years for John. Um, In that, you know, that he thinks that something that is deeply personal to him has been dismissed, primarily, I think, by Paul. Yeah. Um, because Paul is the the one that he complains about, you know, in the telling in the future. It, like <laughs> Paul is the one that is creating sabotage um, to his songs. So this idea that cold turkey, you know, is something that memorializes his experience, and the fact that the Beatles reject it, I think he sees as a rejection of him, you know, because it's so tied to his experience, mm-hmm. and. You know, again, it may seem like, well, that's just one song, as if he would be that upset about it. But that this issue is something that we see him talk about, about later all in of his life. Yeah, later in life, about all of his major songs that I think are deeply connected to his feelings. You know, there's a thread here about what John complains about and what he seems to react to. And it's like when he feels like he wasn't supported on songs that are really meaningful to his life, you know, and, and specifically he complains about Paul in this, like Paul is the one that is creating sabotage to his songs because I think he is the person that he expects to support his songs. So something like cold Turkey, if, you know, if Paul is not supporting him or he feels like Paul is not supporting his experience, it could feel like a rejection of him and his experience. And if we look back, you know, at some of the songs like Help, he talks about that that wasn't brought to life the way that he wanted it to, or Strawberry Strawberry Fields, Fields. yeah, or Across the Universe. Like, those are the ones that he says that, you know, what is it, uh, subconscious sabotage. And anybody looking at those songs would be like, no, Paul contributed incredibly. And I think Paul feels like he contributed, but there's something about how John feels like Paul did not champion his feelings or point of view. And it could be because he thinks that Paul and he, you know, he thinks that they have this telepathy. So it could be like, Paul knew what I was thinking and he didn't bring it to life right. You well, know? it's it's somewhat nonsensical. So we do have to sort of preface it that it's, it's not entirely rational. No. But I think in the, I think in the early days, Paul actually did a great deal in terms of being John's advocate in the studio, right? Yes, musical he, translator, yes. Musical translator, exactly. He would sort of um, 
translate what John wanted to George Martin when John was unable to do so. Yeah. And probably that lessened over time as um, Paul was both writing more and just spending more creative time developing his own ideas. I mean, he would also develop ideas with John, but um, I think Paul sort of expected John to grow also, and I and maybe he didn't, you know, or maybe he he never developed a rapport where he was able to articulate what he needed in the studio, you know, with well, George Martin. Yeah. I mean, even John says that, you know, we've got audio of him in Let It Be saying that he can't... Can't hear the flutes. He can't hear the flutes. Like, he can't imagine how it will be produced in the way that Paul does. Like, Paul has this extra, I guess, production right, skill. Right, he's a producer. Or a skill, a producer that John doesn't have. And so I think he leaned on Paul to help right. him bring his ideas to life. And so, yeah, you see... But that's see not Paul's job. But but I think that John might see that as Paul's job as his partner. I mean, here's the other part. The, the nonsensical part is that John's proof or his support of the the notion that, that Paul is sabotaging his songs is that he says he would be too experimental on his songs, which, like, that makes no sense. It's like, John, if you don't know what you want, <laughs> isn't that Why the way to he? find out what you yes. want like so we experiment until we find something you like baby doll i, I don't know how experimenting would would be sabotage well that's <laughs> I think an he, excellent point that he, because i think that that is a measure of how willing paul is to explore until he finds something right it's commensurate with with what he thinks john is saying and instead of saying like paul really let his creativity go from my songs like he really you know, he put too much creativity into, into my songs. Yeah, you know that that I think that that is a measure of how much. And and sort of George Martin says this that like we really tried, we tried everything. Yes. And in some ways, it's why the songs are so famous. Like tomorrow never knows is so famous because of the production. Of course it is, and I think that's gets to the root of what really fucking bothers John. I think he hates that idea, and it drives him insane and keeps him up at night. Are these right. fucking songs classics or whatever? Are they famous because of what Paul and George Martin did, or are they? Do they stand up on their own? Nobody covers him. Why is he obsessed with that? Why is he so obsessed with nobody covering his songs? Because he's paranoid that deep down it is not the value of the song itself it is the production that makes them so famous well and, so and, and i think that absolutely you know that's why he doesn't want george martin to be as involved in the white album and that's why he champions the white album songs because those are songs that he did with much less input from george martin So the thing is, is with cold turkey, I think it has very long tentacles, as in the ramifications of the rejection of this song are very, very long um, and deep and meaningful. Because I think, again, it might seem like, oh, you're reading a lot into one song. But I think that it's important because it has this history. 
you know, of, of, and, and again, I read into that because John talks about it later. Right, These are emotional right. things to him. You know, we know that help, he, he feels like it should have been slowed down, you know, that they didn't really get that this was how he was feeling. There's something he doesn't like about strawberry fields. And, but beyond them not, not being produced properly, there's also this idea that like, I am the walrus was made to be a B-side, you know, and that, you know, that's a deeply meaningful, the idea of walrus has, is some coded shit there, you know, that is really important to John. He calls himself the walrus. He calls Paul the walrus. Like there's something magical about that. That's probably, we don't know what it means, but it means something to them. But again, I think he's conflating, you know, B-sides with being less important. Yes. And versus less commercial. Right, exactly. It's like the the reason that help was sped up is because it was an A side, right? Yes, exactly. You know, it's like it's the title, the the title song, of the film. So, right. Is it more important to to have an A side, or is it more important to have it the way that you like it? Right. Well, and then that's where we get sort of the. The, the Paul versus John, whereas I think that Paul's always got an ear to let's make this as commercial and exciting as possible. Because well, the, the singles doesn't have to, to be everything. No, for specifically, we're talking about singles, for, for example, with Revolution, too, because that's another yes. one on his list of complaints. And again, all of these songs that he complains about are hugely important to him emotionally. You know, like they're very connected to where he's at. Walrus is very deep. Revolution is something that he felt very deeply at that time. Couldn't make up his mind about it, but he felt deeply about it. <laughs> but but this idea that he liked the slower version of it, but Paul suggested that they increase the speed. I think Paul and George argued for that. And it personally, I think it is a better single oh, much in better. the fast. Much it's much better. more exciting. You know? And it's the but famous it, one. It's the famous one. But again, that you know, John complains that he wanted to put this out fast, but the other Beatles said, no, let's wait. And then Hey Jude ended up being the A-side because, I mean, Hey Jude's their biggest sing. you know, I think it's their biggest selling single. <laughs> right, on right, the right. Forever. So it's like, Revolution's an amazing song, but Hey Jude is like one of the world's most famous songs, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so it's like John feels, I, I just think that this has a long history of him feeling like his songs, his experience is not being prioritized, supported, championed, treated with the respect. And he takes, you know, these things are so connected to his life that he sees it potentially as a bit of a rejection of him. Right. You know, and later he says, well, I, you know, I stopped even suggesting songs unless I was, what does he say? Unless you guys he personally unless, invited me and told me you yes. liked me. Yeah. So, you know, th th therefore, it's becoming like he's hurting him and he feels like I don't even want to suggest these things unless you guys invite me. So I think that the rejection of cold turkey actually plays into this now infamous meeting uh, that takes place on the 8th or 9th of September, um, the 444 meeting that you know, Lewison suggests has rewritten everything, even though it's been in books since the 70s. Mm -hmm. It is mentioned in many years from now, which I guess maybe Lewison has not read um, because this is such a shock to him. But... Um, Wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but anyways, I, I do think that, um, that, that this meeting should be looked at through the lens of this is somebody who feels hurt 
um, by the rejection of this song, because we know that even as recently as the 1st of September, he was trying to get Bob Dylan to play piano on this song. We don't know when it was proposed to the Beatles, but we do know it was sometime after that. So between the 2nd and this meeting is either on the 8th or 9th, that he has proposed this song and it's been rejected. Poor John. He wrote the song. He's super proud of it. And then he relapses. Yeah. And then he brings it to the Beatles and they're like, "Mm, pass. Yeah. That's not us, John. You know, rather than, and I get, I actually really understand why this would have hurt John because, you know, in some ways it's like, well, what do you care more about? Like the reputation of the Beatles or my experience? We have no idea how this conversation went down. Just the fact that we know from John that it was rejected um, because he talks about it later that, and, you know, he sort of says, well, you know, we had other things. It wasn't the right timing. He gives a couple of excuses for this, but we don't know how the conversation went. But, you know, he doesn't talk about the fact that they maybe said, let's, uh, let's try it a different way. Let's, you know, just make it a little bit more commercially accessible or anything like that. We just know that it was rejected, you know? Yeah, we don't have any details on that. And I don't think I've ever heard George or Paul ever talk about the details of how it was rejected or why. But I think certainly the fact that he is offering this song to the Beatles. Means that he is still invested in the Beatles. Right. And that they're still his plan A. Yeah, they're his, still his plan. He takes his best, most important, most confessional, meaningful song and offers it to them and wanted to do it with them and complains later that they didn't want to do it with him. So he was not checked out of the Beatles. Like you said, this is his plan A. This is what he wants to record with. And actually, yeah. he, he says that in an interview. This is a quote we found on the Beatles Bible. It's of John. And he said that he had played with other musicians but felt session players tended not to be on his wavelength. This is the quote. He says, if I wanted to make a record, I'd choose the Beatles, he said. And that, and that was in September of 1969. So, Yeah. All right, let's get into this infamous 444 meeting. So I think to, to frame it properly, we need to take into account all the items that we just discussed. Right. So this has been in the news recently because uh, Mark Lewison has been talking about it, you know, suggesting that it's like new news and it rewrites everything. Uh, and he plays a little bit of it, I guess, in his Hornsey Road uh, PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> that he's giving to the public. Um, But just for background for anybody who doesn't know, there's a tape. Somebody, a private investor, owns it. We don't know who the private investor is. It's a 15-minute meeting between the Beatles. And I guess this guy wanted to sell it. It went up for auction, and he... um, he made a couple of teasers and that amount to about six minutes. So of the 50-minute meeting, we people have heard about six minutes of it. Apparently, Lewison plays about 40 seconds of it. So we are coming to a lot of conclusions and reading into a lot based on those, you know, two, three-minute excerpts that we have from the meeting, right? Right. And, and one of the problems is that 
everybody who's heard the tape has a slightly different take on it. I mean, it's a big problem. It's a it's a big problem, but it's also an excellent, excellent case in point of how and why the Beatles story is so fucked up. Because everything is filtered through the preconceptions of the dudes who are listening to this stuff or getting this information. It all gets, you know, pushed through their their brains. And as we were saying, most of them are shout babies or Lennon remembers babies. Yeah. So they have a lot of baggage already. But I think the one thing that we're doing is we're sort of um, trying to look at what actually was said, you know, and trying to filter out the, the takes on it, you know, and then right. putting that together with interviews that John gave at the end of the month, during the month, and as well as the take in many years from now, because at least these... Like we can kind of triangulate with this information. Right. We've got sort of Paul's perspective on it based, you know, filter through Miles. So but Right, exactly. But even Miles is bringing in his perspective based on what he knows, which in some respects is very little when it comes to, you know, the inner workings of John's mind. Right. You know, I mean, even Paul doesn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the good news is that John actually does give some fairly... Right. Um, open, revealing. revealing interviews right around this time as well, which helps us put together potentially how he could be feeling. Right. So, okay. So we're showing you our methodology there. Right. Okay. And so, by the way, our sources for our take on this are the multiple articles on the mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. And we listened to multiple podcasts about it, including Alan Cozen's take that he mm -hmm. shared on his podcast, Things We Said Today. Just to give a little bit more background that, you know, this was recorded by Anthony Fawcett, who was John's um, personal assistant at the time. He provides a little more information that has been garnered from the tapes. And right. I guess that what he does provide is pr pretty similar to what's in the tape. Right. So, so it's pretty reliable. And, they, you know, according to them, what they've heard in the tape has, has backed up or supported Fawcett's um, written account. But again, we should point out that Fawcett, of course, works for John. So, you know, I, th this seems like a minor point, but it's important because if it was a guy, if this was it was taped by Paul and then it was recounted by somebody who works intimately with Paul, this story would be told from Paul's point of view. You know, it's just like how you take it does depend on the lens that you're seeing things through. So what happens in this meeting? Why is this important? So what we know um, from the accounts of this tape is that uh, it's the three Beatles, George, John, and Paul, and I guess Anthony Fawcett, and this is at Savile Row. And I guess the most interesting, so th these are the subjects they cover, is that John proposes a new LP. And what he does is he suggests four tracks for each. So I'll say that again. <laughs> There's always a dog <laughs> hacking up in the background here. Um, John, shout out to Diana's dog. <laughs> <laughs> so Lennon proposes a new LP with four tracks for each. Uh, four for John, four for George, and four for Paul, and two for Ringo if he wants them. You know, That's and a lot of songs, by the way. They're going to do 14 song albums again. <laughs> they better be short <laughs> songs. They better not all be, <laughs> yeah, hey, Jude, be like want with you. the Beatles. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he proposes that. He talks about 
the myth of Lennon McCartney. You know, he champions George in this meeting. And, um, and then he sort of uh, talks about some of Paul's songs. And so again, this is, this is, I've heard this discussed as like John thinking through things through and, you know, giving this a lot of consideration. Well, no, I mean, we know that John has relapsed back onto heroin. We know that he's had his song rejected within a week of this meeting. And so, yes, he may be coming in and he may have brooded about this meeting and given it some thought, but I don't know if I'd want to consider that like rational, deep no, thought. No. I think that he's coming in and he, you know, John says that he maneuvers. He talks about this in Lennon, in Lennon Remembers. Paul talks about John maneuvering. And so I think he's coming in with a point of view and an objective here. Oh, for sure. Well, I think I think a lot of that, wow, he sounds really thoughtful and reflective, um, comes from his tone of voice, because I've heard the tape, too. I mean, I haven't heard all six right, minutes. Right, right. No. I, but I've heard the Lewis and leaked 45 seconds. Yes. And John's not hysterical. He's not like, you didn't fucking do this. And <laughs> blah, blah, I want to fuck. Oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, right. You know, he's, he's just talking normally. Yeah. So he sounds um, not hysterical, which is why I think they're like, wow, what a mature, thoughtful individual. He really has it all pulled together. Yeah. Okay. So John apparently sounds somewhat rational, but let's dig into what he said. He proposed the 444 division, which is interesting because he's giving George equal space on the album. So let's, let's talk about John's new position on George. Um, well, first of all, uh, Paul's comment that in the past, I thought until this album that George's songs weren't that good, until now his weren't up to speed with us. That That is way milder than half a dozen things that John has said publicly about George and his right, going forward. talents. Yes. Going forward. Yeah, yeah. So he's fairly brutal. I don't even, He's totally brutal in a way that Paul absolutely never is. So I don't even understand why that's a thing. Right. How is that a how is that a bomb? Except that they were like, this is a single rare instance that we have of Paul. Oh, look, we've got him on tape. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a bit mildly of a... dickish. Well, in some ways, he's dickish, and you know, you can see how uh, how frustrating that would be to George. But in some ways, I think at least he's honest and open it's not like he's talking behind George's back he's saying that yeah look you know until recently I didn't think your your songs were as good as ours but now they are and you know he he's he is supportive of very supportive of something and here comes yeah, the sun he consistently it, is and and that's Paul's perspective I think is that those are as good at least as good as any Lennon McCartney song so there's this idea, I think with the 444, you know, John comes in and, and the way that it's been told is that, you know, John is being much more of an advocate for George and he's being much more equitable and, you know, he's stepping up to the role of a leader here in terms of like, this is the way it's going to be. But I mean, it's kind of bullshit because like you said, going forward, George, John does not champion George's work. He doesn't participate in George's songs. He uses George, but he doesn't, you know, return the favor. And certainly George pipes up in this meeting and kind of goes, don't use me here because you didn't even bother to show up to my songs. 
And so, you know, and that's never, <laughs> I think that's quite funny that George actually does this. And at least, and Paul's kind of, kind of a dick in terms of saying, well, I didn't think your songs were as good until they are now, which it's kind, a, kind of a compliment to George. Like, I think your songs are as good as ours now. Um, but at least Paul showed up. According to Shotton, John regarded George almost as a younger brother. He felt genuine affection for him, yet seemed incapable of taking him seriously. George remained, like Ringo, little more than an assistant, a second-class Beatle. Now, that's Pete Shotton's quote, not John's. And then there's also a quote from uh, Ray Connolly. It says, his accounts of conversations with Lennon reinforce the secondary per perception of Harrison and Lennon's mind. Paul and me were the Beatles, he would emphasize to me privately. We wrote the songs. That's an excerpt from um, Aaron Torkelson Weber's book. Well, you know, I think that this, uh, those are both great examples of the point that we made right at the beginning that, you know, looking at this from John and Paul's perspective, and specifically these are from people around John talking about this, you know, Connolly and Shotton, that John sees the Beatles as him and Paul. And yes. so, you know, when it seems like we're John and Paul focused, it's for a reason. We think that this is how we understand they see the Beatles, you know? So this idea that John is coming in right now and is somehow thinking the Beatles are John, George, and Paul, you know, Connolly, this is within a few months later, Connolly is saying that, no, John always talks about the Beatles as him being Paul and John, you know? This is from... 1972 the question is why was george always the most inconspicuous and john replies when we met george he was musically goon on the guitar and he sang a little bit but he had never written a song in his life and it was years before any of his songs made any sense it wasn't that we were holding him back it was just that they were such trash they were rubbish and we weren't about to put his bit of rubbish on when we could turn out better rubbish and, you know, and just, just to add to that, well, this is a quote from John, I think this is in January 1970, he says, um, he talks about something and he says, I don't give a damn about how something is doing in the charts. I watch come together because that's my song. Yes, exactly. So the, this idea that he's out there advocating for George is ridiculous. He's, he, he's very clearly leveraging some sort of a temporary alliance with George against Paul in this meeting. And I'm fucking so, I, I'm so irritated and baffled that these grown men are trying to fucking argue otherwise. Like, oh, John's really stepping up for his buddy George. Like, do I really have to do this? I don't want to do this. Do you want me to sit here and read on air the fucking things that John has said about George well, afterwards? Well, you know, and we know from Lennon Remembers, he talks about how George learned, uh, you know, from Paul and John. and George has not done his best work yet. His talents have developed over the years, and he, ha he, he was working with two fucking brilliant songwriters, and he, had, he learned a lot from us. You know, and uh, I wouldn't mind it being George, the Invisible Man, and learning what he learned. And maybe it was hard sometimes for him because Paul and I are such egomaniacs, but that's the game. You know, but so is George. You know, 
just give him a chance and he'll be the same, you know. So, I don't know, you know. I don't know, I can't assess his talents, you know. I, it's, he's not the kind of person I would buy the records of, you know. But I don't want to say this about him. I don't want it, you know, it'll hurt him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. But just personally, I, I think it's nothing, you know. I think something was a nice tune, but it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, not just rock and roll, just the, the universe or whatever, you know. I, I don't consider my talents fantastic compared with the fucking universe, but I consider George's less. Yeah, okay, so whoever wants to make the argument that John has had a change of heart and is championing George, I mean, I think then you have to reconcile those comments too. You know, that's from, what, seven, uh, late 70? That's from 1970. I mean, the thing is, is that it's not a one-off. This no. is pretty, this is consistent. Yeah. He says this uh, throughout the 70s. Right. So the, He never, ever, ever says that about Paul. He says a lot of shit about Paul. He says a lot of shitty things. This is a dumb album. I don't like this. You know, he can do better, whatever. But it's always, like, in 1980, he says the Beatles could have been me and Paul and two other guys. Yeah, right. He, and that, you know, and that, he, and he does sometimes say, like, he isn't working up to his potential, but that's a different issue. Right. John always respects Paul as an equal in terms of their talent and ability. You know, he's the one that calls him extraordinary. So, you know, and, and Connolly constantly, he says this, that he, John says this, the Beatles were him and Paul. And, you know, Connolly sort of says, that, well, that wasn't fair, but that's how John saw it. Right. And so, you know, Graham I, I, I think... says that too. Oh, right. So here's the thing is that the reason that we're sort of laying this out is to show that this is a pretty consistent pattern of, you know, what John's point of view was about George was that he wasn't Lennon McCartney. So I think that him coming into this meeting and championing 444 songs is not because he's had a revelation that George is equally brilliant and should have as much space. No. Or because he's a wonderful, <laughs> magnanimous leader, which is what, what some would have us believe, and that he Please. his sense of fairness Please. would um, make him the champion of George. I think the reason he's doing this is to have an ally. He's got somebody on his side, so he's got more power to create the scenario that he's looking for, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a power move. It's a power move. And what John is very good at doing is pulling people onto his side, is, is ha yes. rallying people. You know, he does that with Klein. He does that. He maneuvers so that people are on his side. So he's got reinforcements. Paul actually is not as good at doing this. We see he's this. He's awful at doing it. It's actually one of John's transcendent talents, actually. Right, and he does he this. He be... understands the power of having people on his side, whereas he, he does this with Rolling Stone, with Wenner, yes. with Spectre, with Klein. Okay, so then the question is, why does John want the 4442 scenario? You know, I've heard it being floated that, you know, John just wants to do his own thing. Um, you know, maybe he's not interested in working with Paul. I... I personally think, and again, this is the, the long tentacles of cold turkey. I think this meeting is directly a response 
like very, very tied. This is a reaction to the rejection of Cold Turkey, which again, John's not running a ton of songs this year. This is a really important song to him. And I think that this is a reaction to that. Okay, how do I figure out a scenario where I, if they can't see the genius of my songs, that I can get my songs on and I don't have to fight for them being appropriate. So it's kind of a way for John to just figure out a scenario where he doesn't have to fight, where he knows he can get his songs on. Absolutely. And that's that's supported by exactly what he says. Exactly. So I don't necessarily think this is because he's not interested in the others. I think this is almost a defensive move. Like, fuck you, you don't, you don't see my song as being genius and appropriate for the Beatles, then fuck you, I just want four songs and I'm going to put what I want on there. You know, right. if you're not going to support me, then I'm just going to carve out some space and I'm not going to even try and bring you in. And, and uh, in one respect, you can see where he's coming from because he's saying, look, look, hold on a second. Paul, you're not the fucking boss of the Beatles. How many times am I going to bring in here something that, that you veto? I want to be able to put what I want on the album. I'm not asking for more than my fair share. I just don't want to be voted off. And I don't, the other thing is that he makes the point that he doesn't want to fight for them. He doesn't feel strong enough to have to fight for them. You know, he says that it's exhausting for him to have to be advocating for his point of view. And that at one point he stepped back and that Paul never did this. And, you know, I think that in some ways I can be critical of that and Mm -hmm. say, well, you know what, this is, a very highly competitive situation. And that's the way it's been. And that's the, the way it's been. And that, the whole time. And Paul's still up to advocating and fighting for his songs. And in some ways, George's failure to do this has kept some of his songs off. And Paul's kind of like, hey, I'm still willing to fight for my stuff. So, but, you know, on the other hand, Paul is you know, he's like a machine. And so, and, and, yeah. and in some ways, these guys aren't, like, I understand John's point of view, because these guys aren't yes. just advocates. They aren't just competitors. I think to some extent, John is like, I need you to love me and support me sometimes. And I don't want to just be battling to get my songs. Right. And if, if that's what it's going to come down to, I can't do that anymore. I just give me some space on the albums because I don't have it in me. And, you know, some of his wording in there, first of all, he makes the point that it is a battle. He says, if you look back on the Beatles albums, good or bad, or for whatever you think of them, you'll find that most of the time, if anybody's got extra time, it's you for no other reason than you worked it like that. Now, when we get into the studio, I I don't want to go through games with you to get space on the album. You know, I don't want to go through a little maneuvering or whatever level it's on. I gave up fighting for an A-side or fighting for time. I just thought, well, I'm content to have Walrus uh, on the B-side of Hello, Goodbye. When I think it's much better, I didn't have the energy or the nervous type of thing to push it, you know. So I relaxed a little. Nobody else relaxed. You didn't relax in that way. So gradually, I was submerging. So in some ways, you know, again, I'm kind of like, well, John, you just sort of gave up. But on the other yeah. hand... On the other hand, you, you can also empathize with him. That must be exhausting. 
and also there's a certainly an element of Paul that's a brick wall. It's like very hard to penetrate. Right. And and John's got an army behind him at this point. He's like, I brought Yoko in. She says, I agree to every fucking thing that comes out of my mouth. Right. You know. I do have an, a permanent 24-7 advocate with me right, right now. Right, So I've got you. I've got Alan Klein now. I've got, like, a manager who is thinking only of me, promoting me, my full-time bulldog, right? And he's ready to attack you. Yep. Just to protect me. Yep. Right? Yep, and I fought it and <laughs> I, maneuvered I, it so that now it's three against one, so you're outvoted. You have to have him. Exactly. I've pulled the other two in. Yep. They, I've sweetened the pot enough that they're over on my side. Is is Ringo really fighting to get more songs on the Beatles albums? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. But um, so I can I can understand where where John is coming from. But again, it's like as as we pointed out, it that was never the way that it was historically. Historically, it was like the best songs make it to the album or whatever. I feel like Paul is has kind of taken over the role of quality control for the Beatles albums. Like Paul and, and you know, maybe George Martin a little bit. But but just also, we have support that Paul is the most competitive person in the world, you know? And so... Yeah. So And he's going to be fighting for his stuff. And he likes it. I think that's the thing, is that I think Paul likes oh, for competing. Sure. And, you oh, know, for sure. That's the thing, is that... And he, he wants John to be He wants John to be, he likes it when John brings good stuff in because then he can top it or equal it or, you know, that that. that and the Beatles him. albums are stronger. And the Beatles, as a result, are stronger. And so in some ways, you've got one person who loves the competition and one other person, John's just saying, I don't like it. I don't want to do that anymore. It's exhausting. I can't. It's tiring yeah. me out. And so what I've done instead is fix the game where I've got a manager that supports me. I've got a 24-7 advocate. And now what I'm going to do is try and get George on my side. And so you see John is so trying to negotiate a situation that is comfortable for him. And yeah. I don't think this has anything to do with him not wanting Paul to be, you know, collaborating with him it has nothing to do with that it's like he needs support and he's trying to figure out a way to I get agree. it and so like as much as we say Paul is hugely competitive I also think he tries to encourage John you know like Paul's not just a cutthroat competitor we also know that he you know set up the tapes at John's place uh, so that he could do experiments that led to two virgins like Paul is supportive of John as a creative artist. And Paul makes the point, I tried to allow space on albums for your songs only to find you hadn't written any. So, you know, when I see that, I'm like, okay, I totally get, I'm on John's side for this. Then Paul throws this down and it's like, oh yeah, right. Well, okay. And then John says, yeah, there was no point in turning them out. I couldn't, I didn't have the energy to turn them out and get them on as well. And he said, in the future, when we get into the studio, I don't care how we do it. I want it known. I'm allowed to put four songs on the album, whatever happens. Yeah, I mean, you, you can hear you can hear when they start shooting, get it back, get it back. <laughs> <laughs> and let be. You can hear when they start shooting, get back. There's a, uh, that tape where, where Paul's like, 
where are your fucking songs, dude? Yeah. And John's like, yeah, I didn't write any. Totally do, do. And he's like, what the fuck, John? And he's like, well, you know, I'll come up with something. Da, da, da. I'm good under pressure, you know. He says that. Yeah, exactly. And, and Rubber Paul, chicken. And Paul Paul's is like, not yeah. happy with it, you know. You know, he's not impressed. Yeah. Yeah. So you can also understand from Paul's perspective where he's like, pull it fucking together, man. Like, are you are you in the shit or what? Like, like write some fucking song. Stop doing heroin and fucking canoodling with with Yoko or whatever the fuck you guys are doing. And like, pull your shit together and write some songs. I'll help you with them. Yeah, which he does. You got to bring something. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that John really is speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. And and like I said, like on part of it, I understand that he's had he's written a great song, you know. I love cold turkey and that it's been rejected and he's feeling extremely frustrated and he's done all this to make sure that he's got advocates on the on the album. But then at the same time, Paul's like, yeah, you know what? I'm giving you space. You got to step up if you want the space. I'm leaving you space. I'm willing to help you. So in a way, I think the 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 side projects were a good solution to this, where it's like if John needed a little more um, space to not be as successful or whatever, not to write hit songs. Right, not to have the pressure. Yeah, and I don't want to say hit songs as if, like, chart success is the only thing. But, like, let's not not fucking be coy, okay? John is a popular music songwriter, okay? That's what he does. And he says it matters to him, too, actually. Of course it does. That's what he's famous for, okay? The guy writes fucking three-minute pop songs. Just like Paul McCartney, so fuck off, okay? So what I'm saying is, if you if you want space to do things other than write pop songs, you should do that, you know? But, but it, and they made an exception, you know, it's like Revolution 9 did, in fact, get on the White Album, but nobody wants Beatle album after Beatle album of 20 minutes of Yoko screaming. Like, nobody wants that. That's not Beatles music. So I, I get where Paul's coming from, too. Well, and th- this brings us to uh, a different issue is, you know, we, we understand from the accounts of it that Paul is fairly quiet during this. And, you know, we've heard different takes that, you know, that maybe that his quietness suggests that this consent to the situation or... Well, you that's know, Cozen's take. Yeah. So we have various takes or we have some that he just is not on board. We do have in many years from now which is probably the closest to Paul's perspective on this. Only because he authorized the book, so if he disagreed with what was written in a significant way, he could have disputed it. That This is just an excerpt from the book that speaks to this occasion. He says that um, Paul protested that he had tried to allow space on albums for John's songs, only to find that John hadn't written any. I just want it known I'm allowed to put four songs on whatever happens. And then this is Miles's take of it. This was something the other Beatles had always wanted to avoid ever since John's insistence on including Revolution 9 on the White Album. And his anger at their refusal to re- release the long sound collage What's the New Mary Jane. The other three Beatles wanted to retain a readily definable Beatles sound. Apple had already released two versions and unfinished music, Life with the Lions, uh, to master vision and incomprehension, and plans were underway for the wedding a- album. Understandably, the other three wanted John's experiments to remain separate from his work with the Beatles. 
It was for this type of move, a cunning attempt to bypass the Beatles' democracy, that the others, much as they also loved him, regarded him as a maneuvering swine, as Paul once put it. So that suggests that Paul just sees this as a way (laughs) for John to bypass the democracy of the Beatles and to maneuver stuff that he wants onto the album. You know, rather than how we sort of just championed it, whereas that John feels like he can't, he doesn't have the energy to be fighting for his stuff. Well, it could be both. This is this is something that that we talk about from time to time, and I think it's always a good reminder, is that the way that we, as as fans or as Beatles scholars or you know however you want to put it, the way that we see John and Paul is not necessarily the way they see each other. Right. Absolutely. And and this extends to all the authors. I think personally. I think that Paul and John both see each other as strong competitors. I don't think either one of them is thinking, oh, my partner's super weak right now, (laughs) you know? I mean, the interesting thing is that we have the transcripts from this conversation, and we know that uh, John talks about the fact that, you know, I, I, I was submerging. Like, John is much more clear about his weaknesses and his inability to fight so he kind of is communicating this to paul whereas we don't get any of that from paul to john but no not at all but but even so i don't think paul hears that and goes oh i'm oh john i'm so sorry yes i didn't know oh my god are you okay i think (laughs) paul hears that and it's just like oh fuck you. Yeah. Oh, this is all my fault. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, he's used to hearing this kind of stuff from John. I, I'm sure he's kind of like, well, come on, John, you know, step it up. You're, you're not like this delicate little flower. You're off there exactly. doing a good piece of chance. So I think he probably just thinks that this is how John maneuvers. Well, I agree. But the thing is, I do think, don't get me wrong. I think Paul is an incredibly strong person. But you know, nevertheless, I think he's also a deeply sensitive person. Yes. I mean, he's a fucking sensitive artist, right? We have accounts of that, yes, of people saying yeah. he's very, very sensitive, too. He and has John to be. Is, of course, he's very sensitive, and he and he's very sensitive about his art as well. So, you know, if he feels attacked, if he feels like his, his art is attacked, it's going to be personal to him, right? And if it's coming from somebody, John is a person who's very important to him, who he loves, and who's uh, support and approval he wants. Also, I mean, we talk about that a lot from John's side, but of course, Paul wants it from John too. Absolutely. So I, I feel like if he's hearing these things, it's hurtful to him. It's hard to hear something like that. There's somebody coming and complaining and, and being like, you only got your songs on because because you fought harder. I mean, I'm sure Paul hears that and is like, oh, you didn't like my songs. Oh, for then. sure. You're saying they weren't good enough to, oh, okay, I get it. Because Paul's point of view afterwards, if, if we're sort of thinking that Miles is representing his perspective, is that this was a maneuvering tactic. And I think that represents how Paul sees John as such an impressive adversary. He sees John as this very powerful figure, too. You know, so that even when John is saying things like, I was feeling weak or felt like I couldn't compete, 
that's not how he sees John. You know, he sees John right. as very powerful. Right. It works on a lot of people. It works on it works on historians and authors too. I mean, they perpetuate that idea too. I, like at, at the same time that they're like, "Oh, John was so depressed in 1967." Like they've they've gleaned on to the fact that he said that. So they're like, "Oh yeah, it must have been fame and the oppression of his creativity or you know what I mean? They they chalk it up into a an into a, like a heroic thing. Like he was just too cool. And he was just being stifled and, you know, but they don't see it as like poor John. No, but it, it is amazing when you actually go back and look at what he's communicating. It's like, I don't know why nobody picks up on the fact that he is saying constantly he feels insecure and vulnerable, especially, you know, with Paul. You know, like, like maybe Paul isn't hearing that even. Um, right. Well, well, I, I don't think Paul is because Paul's take moving forward is always like, oh, I guess John just needed to do other things. And he just, <laughs> right. he just lost interest with the Beatles. You know, he well, fell out of love with the Beatles and well, he needed other outlet, creative outlets or something. I mean, but that's difficult, though. We don't know how much of that is spin, you know, because he says, like, I think he just had to devote himself to the avant garde. And then he says, <laughs> however much he did that, I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, on, he's, I don't know if he's just he's like, like, a, like low key trolling or something. <laughs> Yeah. And certainly John is not being stifled with the Beatles right now because he's able to do all yeah. of his side projects, you know? And, and so I feel like he's, I, I think maybe he's hearing them, but he's like, well, I don't know what you want me to do because I'm leaving you space. I'm, you know, on albums yeah, and I'm yeah. giving you space to do your side projects. And like, and I helped you write all your Let It Be songs. Yes. I'm collaborating and helping and supporting all of your, your visions. I, you know, showed up for your you know, the ballad of John and Yoko, you know, like, what more do you need me to do? I made your Chuck Berry plagiarism song one of your fucking most beloved songs <laughs> of your whole fucking career. No thank you to me. Right. You know, as we were saying, like, I, John never once was like, by the way, shout out to Paul for that dope ass bass line he right. put out. Transformed my song with, yes. This idea that John is saying that your songs got on just because you, you fought harder. And, you know, so that's got to hurt. I mean, I think that is the number one most hurtful thing. And the thing that Paul is most terrified and paranoid yes. about is that John doesn't respect him artistically. Right. And I think that John knows that that's how he can hurt Paul. So I think you're right that, that this this comment from John saying, I let you get your singles because I, I wasn't fighting enough. And then he goes on to criticize some of Paul's songs. And I think when I've heard this, you know, I think people take this as John was just being clear about his point of view, his artistic <laughs> point of view. But me, from my perspective, knowing that his very important song has just been rejected. Yeah. I just read a lot of that as backlash, as revenge, as mm -hmm. hurt speaking from John. Like, he's not going to be championing 
Paul's songs when he feels like he's been rejected. Because of course, he's going to be like, you didn't like cold turkey, well, fuck you. Yes. I don't like uh, Maxwell and uh, Oh Bloody Evil Dog. Exactly. How about that? Or, or any of your songs. And, you know, so you got all the singles, you reject my song for a single. Well, I didn't like your songs either. You know what I mean? Like, that's a very, very human reaction. For sure, that, for sure. That, I don't blame, I don't blame him for I that. I don't blame him for that. But I'm just saying that people, when they're looking at this, don't take this as a well thought through, you know, um, Represent, oh, yeah, no. representation it, 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 of his perspective you know from the 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 coverage is getting in the press it's kind of like it proves their artistic um discord at this point and to me it's just like john's hitting on a couple of songs that he didn't love because he's feeling hurt that, oh um, yeah well well and also people use it like um john didn't like maxwell silver hammer and this is a sign of their Diverging musical That's tastes. I mean. was John had to meet. John had to go record Imagine or something. It's <laughs> like, well, you you you're picking apart like one song he didn't like, and then you're comparing it to what like the jewels of his catalog. First of all, you can't do that. That's not equivalent. What John is advocating at this time, besides Cold Turkey, is what's the new Mary Jane. So let's put what's the new fucking Mary Jane yes. up against Maxwell, and then and then let's reevaluate the fucking conversation. Exactly. Or you know what? If Paul would have turned around and said. You know what? I didn't really love one after nine oh nine, but you know what? I did that to support you because you didn't have any other songs. You know, yeah, at that time. Right. <laughs> you know? But he doesn't. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't go after John's songs, you know, when they're not up to par. He says that later that I didn't love them all, but we don't know which ones he doesn't love because he doesn't talk about them. You know, but but so John's picking on these songs. I don't see this as like he kind of structures it as you know a rational argument he said you didn't even defend them you didn't even like them yeah he says it's mad for us to put a song on an album that nobody really dug including the guy who wrote it well that that one that line kind of upsets me because it sort of it implies that john pushed him to defend maxwell at some point and paul was just like whatever i just you know it's not that great i just I just wanted it on her. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that he didn't defend it. And we know we talked about it in depth in the previous episode, yes. in our last episode, we know that that song was really meaningful to Paul. And like, he was able to defend it, you know, 25 years later talking to Barry Miles. Like he, he was, he was effusive about that well, song. Right. He's really I mean, proud of it. He includes it in his book of poetry. So I think he may have just been pressured into saying, okay, well, you know, <laughs> I guess it wasn't, I didn't love it. Then John goes on to say, you know, and this, this is where, you know, some of the Beatle bros might take it as, you know, just his artistic integrity. So this is from Womack's book. During the meeting, Lennon proposed that they consider recording a new LP relegating four tracks for each of the band's three principal songwriters. But first, Lennon had an issue to to address with McCartney, namely his tendency, as revealed by the White Album and Abbey Road Sessions, to take up valuable album space with compositions that even McCartney found to be lackluster. He says, it seems mad for us to put a song on an album that nobody really dug, including the guy who wrote it. Just because it was going to be popular, because the LP doesn't have to be that. Wouldn't it be better, because we didn't really dig them, you know, for you to do the songs you dug, and nobody in Maxwell to be given to people who like music like that, you know, like Mary Hopkins or whoever it is that needs the song. 
why don't you give them to them? The only time we need anything vaguely near that, that quality is for a single. For an album, we could just do only stuff that we really dig. And, and I guess he didn't okay. really respond to that. Well, I, I, I see where you can get the artistic differences argument from that. Because if you take it at face value, which I think is always, yes. you know, <laughs> perilous on John's part. Yeah. But um, if you took it at face value, you would be like, oh, okay, well, they are disagreeing about the direction the Beatles should be going in or the Beatles brand right. at this point. Right. And John is saying, no, 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 we, the, the, we're not going to do anything uh, silly or anything uplifting, you know. It's going to be heroin withdrawal and Yoko screaming. <laughs> and if you want to bring in something along those lines, the I think music. that's acceptable. Yes, the granny's like. Yeah, exactly. Anything that could be enjoyed over so, someone over the age of 35 is unacceptable. I mean, what what's the target audience for the Mary Jane? <laughs> it can only be atonal collages that are upsetting to people. <laughs> that is, people actively dislike. Yes, exactly. If it's it, if, it is a sellout to be liked. If they are not walking not out when they hear the song, <laughs> it is right. a failure. Right, because actually he, he said at that time the Beatles can go on appealing to a wide audience as long as they make albums like Abbey Road, which have nice little folk songs like Maxwell Silver Hammer for the grannies to dig. Again, if you just take that seriously and it's like, oh, John hates the granny songs. But if you actually think about it that two days earlier, Cold Turkey has been rejected, that actually yeah. gives a very different spin. Abbey it Road, sure does. Abbey Road was Paul's baby. And John knows it, even though he's got amazing songs on it. So if, if Paul's like, nah, sorry, John, we're not doing cool turkey. That's not our kind of thing. Then I, I get where he's running out going, making fun of Paul's songs. Yeah. Also, also to, to sort of reject what John is saying here, because he's like, you know, let's just let's just pull, put the cool stuff that we love on the album. Like, you know, a couple weeks <laughs> later. John goes, uh, he, in a different interview, he says, an album to me is a bunch of records that you can't have. I like singles myself. And then he <laughs> says, I think Paul has a conception of albums or attempts at it, like he conceived of the medley thing. I'm not interested in conceptions of album. All I'm interested in is the sound. I just put 14 rock songs on. So, you know, I kind of get wow, the, John. I mean, I kind of get what he's saying. He's like, let's put just 14 cool songs that we love on. And that's, I guess, the consistency. But on the other hand, it's like he just said, I like mm. singles myself. And then he said, the only time we need singles is or something like Maxwell or Obladi is for singles. So it's like he's all over the place in terms of what he's saying. Yeah. I think what he's just saying is like, I'm angry. You don't like my shit. And Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am disgruntled. I am disgruntled, and whatever your stuff is, that's what I don't like at this moment. You can understand where that sort of leaves Paul going, well, I mean, what, what is he going to say in that scenario? Right. He's kind of like, in this one, okay. In this one, he's saying, like, who cares about singles? You know, that's just for the trashy population. And then, like, Paul <laughs> might be listening to his interview a month later, and he's going, I like singles myself. It's Paul who tries to make an album. And Paul's like, I don't know what you want. Maybe he feels like he hasn't spearheaded an album concept for the Beatles yet, and he's kind of pissed off about that. 
Yeah, I so mean, he's rejecting just the whole idea. I think so. I think, you know, they've just released, when he gives this interview, they've just released Abbey Road. The medley is being sort of viewed as something that's really incredible on the album. My point is, is I, I think it's inconsistent with what he says later. Like, why is he lecturing Paul about songs and then saying that I just want space where I can put whatever songs I want? It's like, well, <laughs> right, 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 right. you know, so pick a, pick a lane, John. Is it like, just let people do what they want or else is it that they all have, right, to, right, right, they all right. have to love the songs? That That's my only point. Yeah, are you laissez-faire, John? Or Yeah. We don't have a direct quote from John, and we have not heard this portion of the tape. So this is just a paraphrase from Alan Cozen um, that John basically says, OK, from now on, we're going to get rid of the myth of Lennon McCartney and my songs will be listed as John and Paul's will be Paul's. Um, and then they have apparently a discussion about can they uh, legally do that? So. They don't even know if this is a possibility. And then John says, well, we'll want to do it in a way that won't get the press saying, oh, they're splitting. Which is weird because I don't understand why that is a concern. <laughs> right. Well, especially if he was planning to leave the group. Um, that, you know, I don't know why John would be sensitive to this. So they're planning uh, they're planning their next album together. Yes. And they want to have separate songwriting credits, but they also don't want breakup room. Like I don't understand if a new album comes out, a new Beatles album comes out and the John's songs say John and Paul's songs say Paul, then people are just going to be like, "Oh, so why did you guys split your um, Lennon McCartney thing. They're not going to be like, are the Beatles breaking up? Like they just put out an album. I don't like. I don't even understand what he's talking about. Well, I guess it would have been big news if Lennon and McCartney. You know, that's the at that time. Well, he still is extremely famous that partnership, and so, you know, I, I'm sure there was a lot of new lot in the, the newspaper about you know, Yoko coming in and Lennon McCartney separating and, you know, is this the end of the Beatles and that kind of thing? You know, like, I think that they, it was probably noticed that the division between them had happened. And so that was seen as potentially, you know, the end of the, the, the Beatles as we know it. I get it. I get it why he would, how that's connected. I mean, if I saw, because I think that even we say that, you know, the axis of, of the Beatles is this partnership, you know, the core of the Beatles yeah, is this partnership, yeah, right? Yeah, but, but, but if I saw that, I would think, oh, something is wrong between John and Paul. Yeah. I wouldn't think, oh, the Beatles are breaking up. Like, obviously, if I have a new album in my hand. Yeah, but, but to my point that if I think that the Beatles really stem from John and Paul, which is something that John says for the rest of his life, and all of a sudden I see that that partnership has broken up, it would probably, I would probably think, huh, okay, I guess the Beatles as we know it is 
But that's different. The Beatles as we know it is no longer, or this is some sort of bullshit version of the Beatles, yeah. or this is not the real Beatles. Or, like, those are all, like, separate issues from are the Beatles breaking up. Yeah, sure. I don't know. It just seems, it seems like an odd concern to me. Especially, again, you're discussing this in the context of a new Beatles album. So I don't even. Oh, right, right. It's it's weird. My thing is, like, if, you know, again, we have not heard this section of the tape. I mean, it's hard to judge from 45 seconds how he was for the entire meeting, but he's not ranting. He's not hysterical. (laughs) He doesn't sound like he's throwing furniture or anything. So, okay. So we know that much. And he doesn't sound especially worked up. He sounds maybe like a little bit annoyed and kind of depressed. Yeah. And, you know, maybe like he's a a heroin junkie. Like, he does sound like that a little right, bit. Right, right. He's a little bit um, lacking in the energy. It's a little bit, uh. These things have been spun as, like, John was decisive and, you know, he was, you know, it's just funny the way that people can spin these things. But, like, John actually just sounded, like, he sounded a lot more animated at any point in Let It Be. Whereas this is just him kind of talking about stuff. Okay, so the myth. If I hear that, like, from now on, we're going to get rid of the myth of Lennon-McCartney, I would think, okay, so at some point, very, very recently, they had a conversation where Paul said, I don't want to write with you anymore, or we don't write together anymore, so what is even our partnership, or something along those lines. Um, that is what I would think if, you know, just, just reading that because that is a, he's, he's referring to or reacting to something. Yeah, I, I agree that in some ways the word myth is aggressive to me. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not like, it's not like he's saying, Hey, you know, Paul, let's, you know, as we discussed, let's just separate, you know, we're going to separate right, because it works right, better. Right. It's like that word myth is, is saying that it's fake and it's, yes. you know, so what is the reason for him reacting in this way? Because realistically, you know, I always read about the fact that the partnership between John and Paul hadn't really been what it was for a number of years but when you think about it in 67 Sgt. Pepper they wrote really closely together and John says that was a peak right mm-hmm. and 68 they do have their own songs but they are working together a ton and we've got we can see how closely they work how much they collaborate especially on John's songs yeah and let it be and we know that they oh, yeah. you know we just went through Abbey Road and we know that Paul helped transform come together and mm-hmm. we know that, you know, that they worked on the medley together and Paul contributed to Sun King. We know that Paul mm-hmm. contributed to the Ballad of John and Yoko. Yep. So, so this idea that it's a myth, I mean, they aren't necessarily writing, you know, nose to nose or eyeball to eyeball anymore. However, they are hugely collaborating on these songs. So it really well, they, and truly they, but- is not a myth, you know? Well, I disagree that they're not even writing eyeball to eyeball necessarily. It's just that now Yoko is three feet away <laughs> also at all there. times. Yes. Yeah. 
because they 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 are actually working fairly intimately on let it be i mean those are fucking receipts we have we have all the tapes yeah and a lot of footage like we've seen it so we know that they are writing together you can hear them going through 25 takes of dig a pony or whatever like like molding the song and and whipping it into shape so they're definitely working together here's here's a question that 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 uh that we discussed for a little bit though what is this myth that he's referring to the myth of one mccarty because john and paul have been saying since 1964 right in public <laughs> at, like in yes. every interview that sometimes they that they actually sometimes write songs separately but they run them by each other or you know whatever or maybe someone offers one suggestion here or tweak here or maybe they just give a thumbs up that's been going on since the beginning and they talk openly about that it's not as if they have some pr dance where they're like yes we write everything 50 50 or he writes all the lyrics and i write all the music or any of that yeah even in 68 when they went to new york you know they talk about they have always given the same answer sometimes he writes the lyrics sometimes i write the music, sometimes we write them separately. You know, they've always said that. So so that's what makes me think that the word myth is emotionally, personal. is personal and emotionally yep. charged. I, I, I definitely agree. And it's a word that he starts to use going forward. I was just going to say that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, because he, he talks about it in multiple ways that it got fake, that it was a myth. Yep. It and, was false. Yes, it was false. Exactly. And so the dream is over. <laughs> no, it's true that this is this is a really important theme that starts around this point. And so what the question is, I think that's worth thinking about is what seems false to John at this point? What is if they are actually collaborating musically on some songs, then what is not true anymore? Right. Exactly. And and moving forward, there is always, from John, an attitude of, this turned out to be a lie. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much disillusionment. Yeah. Disillusionment is the exact right word. Like, he had a dream of it being something that it... Turns out it wasn't. Yes. And the fact that it wasn't this perfect thing to him sort of makes it invalid. He never explains what that disillusionment is about or what the lie is, ever. Right. But he says it, like, even in 71, he's talking about the fact that they wouldn't write again together because they don't live together anymore. You know, it's... So what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? Exactly. He literally said, what's the point? (laughs) Right. Right. And again, the context here is that we've just finished Abbey Road, and they they apparently worked quite well together. But within four or five days, John's newest song that he's really excited about has been rejected. So I really look at this meeting through that filter that he's still emotional about this issue. And... Yeah, I think that is the most important piece of information that we need to f- properly frame this meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Which, this just happened. Right. 
for anybody who's thinking, well, it's just a song, it's like, look at how upset Paul gets about the long and winding road. Like, it's in his court documents. It's like, he's always ranting about this song. He pretty well redoes the album, you know, let it be naked to remove the production. Yeah. These songs are extremely important to them. Important to them. And again, this is, you know, one of John's most intimate confessional songs that his bandmates apparently kind of shrugged and said, you know, not Beatles music from, right. from what we understand. We don't know that, but that that's sort of the gist that we've read in yeah. books. Um, and then the, this meeting is what almost immediately follows in reaction to that, yep. or, you know, subsequent to that rejection. When I hear the thing about like, okay, fine, we're going to get rid of the myth of Lennon McCartney and we'll just label my songs, John, and yours, Paul. You know, when I said that to me sounds like Paul said something to the effect of, I don't want to write with you or we don't write or there is no relationship or something like that. We have no, no proof that he said anything like that. And there's nothing really to suggest that that was the case, right? <laughs> we don't, and and I can't imagine Paul saying like, I don't want to write with you, fuck off. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think that's the case. I think yeah. he does want to continue to write with John. Right. So I'm not saying that he said that. I'm saying for whatever reason, I feel like John is, is reacting as if this is what he heard from Paul. And <laughs> we do know that Paul has rejected cold turkey. Are you suggesting that John may feel like Paul doesn't want to be a part of John's song? Like he doesn't necessarily want his name associated with, like if John's sort of saying, well, if this is not Beatles music, then fuck you. This will be John Lennon music. And let's just, you know, you don't have to have your name on this. I think what he's saying is that, okay, fine. How about like this going forward you don't have to put your name on any of my shit then, okay? You don't like cold turkey, and it's not Beatles music to you, like it doesn't reflect your fucking values or whatever, then how about this? You don't have to worry about that. My songs will clearly have my name on them. They will say John Lennon, and nobody will think that you did fucking heroin, okay? You put your name on your shit, I'll put my name on my shit. Yeah. And then we don't have to worry about our combined fucking image. Yes. Yes. You have your image, I have my image, and don't worry about me. Right. And, and don't worry about me ruining the Beatles image. I'll just be John now. Right. Okay? That sounds to me like a very likely emotional reaction from somebody having something rejected. It's just like, well, you know what? I like it. I'm happy. I will stand behind it. You don't need to put your name on it. You keep your stuff. I don't even like, right. I don't even like exactly, your stuff. Exactly. 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 And from now on, we're labeling all of our shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you think your stuff is so great. Well, you you can call it Paul McCartney stuff. Exactly. You know, all of these songs are not are not Lennon McCartney's anymore. My songs will be mine. Your songs will be yours, and that's how we'll do it moving forward. How about that? Yeah, and and the thing is, is that I don't take this statement that seriously because it never comes up in the future. You never hear from John saying, you know, I wanted to continue the Beatles, but just separate Lennon and McCartney and Paul just didn't want that. You know, neither right, one of right. them yeah. ever mentions this as a subject again. And, you know, John later on talks about being so proud that, you know, Paul was his partner. And he tells Connolly and many others, as we've said, that he and Paul were the Beatles. 
I think that this is a reactive yeah. statement rather than a deep desire for this to I be agree. the case. This is not a real thing. <laughs> I don't. Th- I no. think this is showboating. No, and again, Paul never brings it up. Grandstanding. Either. Yeah, it's grandstanding, and. Paul never brings it up as like, well, John just wanted, you know, to separate Lennon. You know, it just, it's never been mentioned. I think it's never been mentioned because it's not, nobody took it that, that seriously. It's not, yeah, it's not a, it's not a real thing. It was, we said in the meeting, they, they like, they, they have a side discussion of even, if that's even a thing they could do. Yeah. And here's the other thing is that, as we said, that, the myth word to me is aggressive. You know, if I, if I was, you know, say, we'll make this into a marriage analogy. And, you know, my husband was like, and another thing, the myth of our marriage uh, is not going to be anymore. (laughs) You're kind of like, oh, okay. Um, He's like, oh, and by the way, you need to go back to your maiden name. Yeah. And I will use my name. And so the myth of this fucking marriage will not be perpetrated anymore. Exactly, longer. exactly. And you'd be sitting there going, well, it's not a, what do you mean myth? You know, but it's meant to, it's a word that's meant to hurt the other partner. Because it, he's saying that something about it isn't true. And I just, I'm just throwing out a hypothesis here. That it could be that Paul, uh, that John, it could be that part of the partnership for John, is the idea that, you know, he mentions this in 66, that only 100 people understand our music and our thoughts and what our songs mean. And later on, he talks about them having this connection and telepathy. And it could be to John that their partnership means being on the same wavelength, being committed to the same things, being really supportive of each other's visions, and John may be hurt that he's come with this song that Paul has not championed or, you know, embraced. And so, you know, I can imagine that John might feel like, this is me, this is my experience, you're supposed to be my fucking partner, and I'm just getting rejected straight out, like as in, I'm just another player here, so what the fuck, what kind of a partnership we ha- do we have? You know, we're supposed to be a team and you're treating me like, well, we're outvoting you. So what kind of a partnership is it? And to some extent, I understand that point of view from John, if that is actually what he's feeling. It's like sometimes, you know, he talks about like for Magical Mystery Tour, Paul just phoning him up and saying, I need some songs or when they are in Let It Be, like, you know, bring some songs. It's like Paul kind of isn't treating him like let's collaborate and work together and work on some stuff at that point he's just saying that let's both bring stuff you know and then we'll make it better together which you know maybe how Paul is thinking about it but I just wonder if there's more of the emotional connection the shared vision the support of each other you know John says that you know it seems like John looks to Paul to help bring his songs to life and if Paul's just out and out rejecting things that are deeply personal to John, that, I, you know, maybe it seems like, well, you're not on my side. You're not on my team now anyway. So it's a fucking myth. Well, I mean, he's severely, severely hurt and disillusioned by Paul for some fucking reason. Yeah. And we, so we, I don't think that what you described is so far-fetched because if it's, if it's not precisely that, it's got to be something like that. 
one of the most revealing quotes to me is John telling Fred Seaman 1980 or like in the late 70s saying he didn't have any friends because he was too traumatized by what happened with Paul. Right. That that um, his ex- his experience with Paul taught him that friendship was a romantic illusion. Right. Like some some kind of a romantic notion in his mind of you know what they should the expectations that they have for each other and you know and that, that scarred him so deeply that he never made another friend <laughs> right for the rest of his right. life exactly and i mean the point about that is that how deeply and emotionally impacted he was by the situation with paul which means that actually reflects how much he cared too you know of course yeah and and now is about you know this word myth is kind of like a little bit of a trigger because it it this is like this is the beginning of like where he goes with yes, this yes yes exactly for the rest of his life you yes know? this is a theme that he starts to pick up and gain steam with him that that somehow their mind, partnership yeah. was fake and there's yeah. so there's something that he deeply believed in that he comes to believe it sounds like he comes to believe was fake on Paul's part. Yeah. Yeah. And again, even John gives an interview in the spring of 69 talking about the fact, well, you can't say we're not writing together. We are. And he talks about how he and Paul are collaborating. And so, which they are. Yeah. So our point about it being a myth. I mean, again, they're not writing songs in the back of a van together. Yep. But it's definitely, it's different, but they're still working together. Well, you know, and John says later that Sgt. Pepper was was a peak for them. And we know that they were collaborated incredibly closely together. And that's not the back of a van either. And that's not in a hotel room either. And they don't live together. Yeah. You know? That's true. So, so all of these things that they later explain when it was true aren't the case for Sgt. Pepper when it was a real great collaboration. One other element that you brought up, John may be hurt and upset that he's been a little bit shut out of Paul's songs too. You know, you mentioned that before, that, and I think that's true. When we look at the collaboration from this year, it's mostly Paul collaborating with John. Paul is doing a lot of his work on his own. Do you think that could be playing into the, you do your songs? Because there could be an element of, you don't want, you don't want my help anyways. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, that's why John is so like catty about all of you know Paul's uh, you know classics from this right. year. Well, I like saying "Let It Be" could be a wing song. That's basically saying that I had no part in that, and it's a beautiful song. And and he says that in the interview too that there's this amazing song called "Let It Be." You know, in the same spring interview. So at some point he said it was amazing, you know? Well, and he, and Wings is a great band, so I don't even know what the point of that is. To say, like, Paul could have done that song with Daddy and Henry and it wouldn't have made any difference. I mean, he could have just swapped us out. Yeah. Exactly. But I think that that's coming from a place of, you know, him being exactly locked out of the creative process of these songs. Like, Paul's just coming in with Long and Winding Road and Let It Be and all these big hits that he's not looking to John even for the arrangement of these. I guess, you know, they worked a little bit on um, 
uh, two of us. So occasionally Paul does include John. Yeah. Well, not for nothing, but like, what the fuck is John going to contribute to Let It Be? <laughs> right. It's a fully realized song that I, I just wonder if that's one of the reasons why he's like, you don't like my songs? Fine. Take, take, I'll just call these a John Lennon. You don't have to worry about your name being sullied and you're not including me anyways. So you just call those Paul McCartney songs. Fine. Right. You know, like it's, right. a, it's exactly, a little, exactly. it's a little bit bitter, you know, doing it is bitter, but listen, I'm saying like, like, again, we have to put that in the context of, you know, this is what's so disingenuous about, about Lewis and where he's like, whoa, this changes everything. It's like, well, why does it fucking change everything? Aren't you a fucking historian? Why don't you put this all together? Isn't that what your job is supposed to be? What are the two things that this is sandwiched between? This comes 13 days before John saying, I want a divorce to his metaphorical spouse, okay? So we're talking about John using a word like the myth, let's destroy the myth of Lennon-McCartney, and how that has a bitter tone to it, Mm -hmm. that choice of words, right? I don't mean his actual tone of voice, because again, we don't have that information, but like, I hear that as, as the beginning of him saying, okay, fine, you get all your books off the bookshelf then. Yes, but that's what I mean about it being like, it sounds almost like the beginning of a battle with people who are hurting each other. Right. That, yeah, that's it. It's like, oh, you're doing that. Okay. Well then why don't you come get your shit out of my closet? Exactly. From now on, I will take this bedroom. You take bedroom, you know, or right. Like, because we our, our marriage in a month anyway. Exactly. So it's a total <laughs> myth and sham. Right. <laughs> this doesn't resolve it. It escalates. Right. Uh, we know from Paul's perspective that he was not supportive of this. You know, we don't know that from these tapes, but in Barry Miles's book, it suggests that this was not of interest to Paul. He saw it as a maneuvering play. And we know that they didn't proceed with this. At least as far as we know, we don't necessarily know that they were planning to make another album. It doesn't, as in, they had this discussion and it sounds like nothing came of it. And, and you know, one of the things that Paul has been characterized as being quiet in this meeting, again, we don't know. We, nobody knows because nobody has the 44 extra minutes, but he's been characterized as being quiet. So, so Paul letting John talk and not interrupting him is now a fucking character flaw. <laughs> he's got to be on, on weed or something. Stupid. Right. Never mind the fact that he's just had a baby. So maybe he's hasn't slept. I think you're missing the point, Diana. You're missing the point, which is that John Lennon, had to end the Beatles because Paul McCartney was so irresponsible that he would show up to an Apple board meeting. You know how serious those are. (laughs) He would, I I can't believe he would show up. Maybe possibly we have zero proof that he might've smoked a joint. (laughs) That is just, that's unforgivable. And John Lennon had no choice, but to dissolve the band. If that's the kind of partner you have, then well, what can you do? Yeah. I mean, building a bed in the studio and getting heroin delivered is, that's fine. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But like smoking a joint before you show up to a meeting that John Lennon may or may not declare he's Jesus Christ in. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's serious business and you need to take it seriously, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the way it's been told, it's like kind of a joke, like Paul may have been, you know, 
smoking a joint or something before he came. Like, well, how do you know? So it's a weird <laughs> thing just to jump to, but if he did, I would say it's probably pretty likely so had everybody else in the room. Um, the thing is that Miles suggests that Paul was opposed to this idea because he thought John would use it as a sort of Trojan horse to get, you know, four versions of what's the new Mary Jane onto the album or whatever. Like if, if John just has a free pass to put any four songs he can come up with on a Beatles album, then there's no quality control. Right. You can just do whatever, including like sabotage the Beatles and just, you know, have him going, fuck you, fuck you. Right. Fuck you for three and a half minutes, which does sound like something John and Yoko would do. <laughs> At that point, yes. Yeah. yeah. And he, Absolutely. Yeah, he says, and the other three Beatles wanted to retain a readily definable Beatles sound. You know, and then he goes on to say Apple had already released two virgins and an unfinished music life with the Lions to master origin and incomprehension. And plans were underway for the wedding album. So, you know, and he says, understandably, the other three wanted John's experiments to remain separate from his work with the Beatles. That's fair. That is fair. I, I mean, I, I think everybody, I think everybody can agree with that, including John and Yoko fans, um, of which I consider myself, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, uh, I, I want their, their album should be their albums. Yeah. They don't, why they don't need to be on the Beatles albums. Right. And, and it, it's perfectly reasonable for Paul to be like, no, no, we're not doing that. Right. Like, no, if we're not all collaborating, if we're not all into the music, if we're not all this, you know, if this is not something that we're all working on, then it's not the Beatles anymore. Like, I mean, that's what Miles claims. Yes. Yes. I mean, he I don't know what his support for that is as far as, um, uh, you know, George and Ringo's point of view. I would imagine that George would want a guaranteed four spots on the album. Like I would think that that is something that he would agree to. You know, John proposes this and then it sounds like he shut down. I mean, we don't know what happens, but it doesn't go anywhere. And when he talks about George, right. We do know that, you know, John proposes this and George does not actually jump on this. Yeah. George bites back a little bit and is like, you know, John, you didn't show up for my songs. Right. So please, don't pour it on so thick. Exactly. I think that this is a really clear move on John's part to try and make an mm. ally of George as a mm. way to strengthen his position. It's a, it's purely a maneuvering power, you know, it's a power move to say that, you know what, I can, I can make an alliance with you and then we can over, you know, we can force Paul's hand on this issue. But George doesn't seem to bite as much as I think that he would probably like the four songs that he doesn't seem to be supportive of what John is saying, at least at that point from what we know. Well, I think deep down he, he believes that they're both full of shit. But look, here's the thing is there's nothing on the books that anything is going to be done after this. Nobody says that they made an right, agreement. Right, right, right. And nobody says we had a handshake agreement. And as you point out, like, John never says moving forward, look, it was, I wanted the Beatles to continue. All I said was, I thought that 
my songs should just be credited to me and Paul should be credited to him. And that was just to reduce conflict over what we, you know, had could mutually agree upon as songs that were going to represent both of us. Like, that's a perfectly reasonable thing if he had ever said that. He never said that. Because no. it's not a real thing. <laughs> this is this is this is all for this is all performative. Yes, exactly. And 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 you know, John knows that he's being recorded, you know, that he Of course. And that's what he does. That's that's what he's been doing all year. He walks around with a little fucking tape recorder and makes tape recordings of himself and everybody else. Right. He's t- he's taping himself, taking his shit. He's taping himself, you know. Yeah. Brushing his teeth. He's you know taping Yoko breathing and giggling and and like d- her reading the paper and shit. I have those albums. I've heard of them. <laughs> I know what's on them. Right. Yes, yeah. he's covering his ass. Right. Right, he's covering his ass. He's on record now. He's playing games. Yeah. Can I tell you something? I heard Masha Gessen say a couple days ago. <laughs> this is like, oh Lord, are you talking about fascism now? <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> I am, but I'll try to make it relevant. So, but she said like um, every power grab begins with a performance, and it's a matter of like if that performance is believed then it it gives some credence to that illusion of power and then that person can continue. Right. I think, and I feel like that's a little bit of what's, what's going on here. Absolutely. Sort of all year. It sounds like this did not necessarily take off, you know? No, but I think he tries it again in the, in the, I want a divorce. I think that's the ultimate, like, performance and it works insofar as like Paul believes it yes and it does it does switch the power and the control to John and Paul says that later so exactly he says that explicitly and the thing is that I think it it again as we've said I think he overplayed his hand meaning like I think he wanted to scare Paul I don't think he necessarily meant for Paul to completely like internalize it and believe him 100%. Right. He wanted to scare him into acting away. Like he wanted to scare him to basically get him to change in a way that he wanted oh, yeah. him to rather than to walk away. Well, I, I think it's clear that he wants him to come back and, and ask him to and say, like, I want to be here. I, w- I want to still be together and right. I want to still do Beatles and right. I would like to still do Lennon McCartney if you're interested in writing together. That's actually a great point is that we know from Green, Green may be not the most credible source in the world, but he knows this story and it's coming from somewhere, you know? So it's, it's yeah. basically like, I believe a version of it came from John. Yeah. And, you know, John tells him the story that he was happy. Alan Klein asked John not to say anything. And Paul was like, oh, good, you're not going to say anything. Then it's not real. And John was happy about that because this is, according to Green, this is what John says, is that he thought that that meant that Paul was going to try to fix it. Yeah, that somehow they would do it all over again that they would work it out. I think that that's actually a great support that this desire to separate their names, you know, because it, 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 he's not talking about George or Ringo. He was, he said that he was touched that Paul thought that they could work it out somehow. And so to me, that's, 
suggesting that the issue is between Lennon and McCartney. He's happy that Paul seems to be still committed and wants to work on it. Of course, then he later says that, you know, Paul fucked him and he was touched in the head to believe that. But I think it shows the fact that John wants to believe, wants to believe, wants to be, wants things to change in a positive way for them rather than John actually wants to just walk away. Right. Right. And I think he feels like Paul's heart isn't in it and Paul's not really, Paul might not love him anymore or right like here's the thing love the partnership anymore or whatever well, and 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 paul's afraid of the same thing well here's the thing with john and this is this is a trend going forward is that say for example with cold turkey to the point that i was making before that john may talk about the myth or it being false their partnership in that paul doesn't doesn't sort of say yeah john that was really important to you i'm your your best friend and partner I want, I want to put this into the world too, you know, or let's modify it a little bit to make it just a little bit more, you know, digestible to our larger fan base or something like that. We just know that it was rejected. And I think that when Paul is like, that's not Beatles music, that he almost is evaluating it based on like a business decision. Like that's not commercial. That doesn't mm. fit our mold that I think that John starts to see Paul's commitment to the Beatles as being it being almost like a business of the Beatles, like what fits well onto ours. John, you bring your songs, I'll bring mine. We'll slap the, the word Beatles on it or the title Beatles on it. And that Paul's becoming more and more, you know, it's becoming more of a business partnership to him. I don't think it was in any way whatsoever, but you know, that's sort of John's fear going forward is yes. that he's being yes. used by Paul for business yes. reasons and for fame rather than the kind of collaboration that he wants, which is kind of this mind, heart, soul connection, artistic connection. Right. And again, I, I don't think there's any basis to that in reality. I always wonder like what, gives John this impression. I mean, other than, you know, other than the fact that we know that, that Paul doesn't probably express, especially feelings like that. I mean, he's not going to go up, you know, he's spoken about that many, many times. He's like, look, I wasn't going to walk up to be, to him and be like, I think you're an amazing songwriter and I really value you. <laughs> yeah. And I love our partnership. He's like, I don't fucking do that, you know, <laughs> but like, but neither did John. So, <laughs> Right. Well, again, in this meeting, you hear John talking about, you know, I was submerging, I was too weak to argue for. So John does communicate a little bit more his point does, of view. Does, so for sure. So I think John is better. Submerging, that's that drowning again. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it may be that their dynamic that John shares more and Paul doesn't. I suspect Paul was may have been a little bit more matter of fact about that's not Beatles music. Or that's not right for our next single. Or, I mean, you see him in Let It Be being very, very supportive. Blunt? No, blunt, but oh. no, but supportive of John's song. So maybe there isn't any truth to that. But I don't know. For well, some... I, think, I think Paul can also be uh, blunt. Like he is with George in this meeting. Like that was an excellent example of Paul kind of not pandering to emotions. Like he's not being, he's not worried about 
being sensitive to George. He's kind of like, yeah, I didn't think your songs were as good until now. And they're now they're as good as ours. And in some ways, there's a real compliment to that. But in some ways, it's kind of an asshole comment, too. But this is a this is a point I just do want to make this that we know for a fact that Paul can be blunt and harsh. Yes. And that 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 John and Paul traditionally until things got fucking weird between them and then they couldn't communicate and they had to walk on eggshells and Yoko was fucking sitting there in the room for no reason. They were always blunt and upfront with each other. It was one of their strengths. And everybody says that. I mean, like everybody in a position to know, which again, as we always stress, is only a handful of people because there were legit only a, like a handful of people who actually knew these right. people it was a very closed, in an intimate yes, setting. It was a very closed group. And George Martin and Jeff Emmerich both testify to that, that that was a mutual strength of both of theirs, that they could both say, no, nah, dude. Yes. No. And they, they would listen to each other. Yes. And they didn't have to go, well, I'm not, you know what, maybe we could, you know, it's like they were young guys, like the biggest rock stars on the planet. So they weren't like gingerly. Well, also, they've been working together since they were 15, 16 years old. So they know each other very well. You know, like they don't need to somebody that you've grown up with, you don't have to be preface it with, you know, well, I just, I did like this about your song. It's like, no, these guys are writing together all the time that they you know, and, right. and they apparently loved each other's songs, too. You know, people have said yeah. that, like John says in 66, that only 100 people truly understand our songs. He sees them as our songs, which may be another issue that's contributing to the situation. Is there not s- somehow at some point, like you said, in the past year, year and a half, they have started to think of their songs as John songs and Paul songs. And it's been a competition versus our music, you know? Yeah. Just one last point that at the end of this meeting, Paul says, well, when we get into a studio, even on the worst day, I'm still playing bass, Ringo's still drumming, and we're still there, you know? And to me, that's a little bit counter what Kozen is saying or sort of refutes it. And that, you know, apparently Paul says this in a quiet voice, as in, it's not that bad. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still showing up. It's still good. So if this was all an agreed upon thing, like, I think that Paul's saying, come on, at the, at the end of the day, it's still us. It's, there's still a lot of good. Yeah. And so Cozen's take that this was already solved in advance and, you know, done deal doesn't make sense for him to be sort of saying, come on, John, it's not that bad. Meaning that that is more likely a reaction to what he thinks is John grandstanding yes. versus a, a done deal. Exactly. That discussed. Like, I think that that's the kind of response one would have if John comes in and is like, that's it. I just want to have four <laughs> songs each of us, and you know what? We're going to separate the fucking myth of Lennon McCartney. This is what we're going to do. And you're not going to bring any of those songs. You don't like my song? Well, I don't like Maxwell. And, you know, so Paul just sitting there kind of going, well, it's not that bad. Come on, you know? Like, at the end of the day, we're all showing up. We're all playing. You know, I'm not sure why he would be saying that if it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we've just checked off the division and destruction of the Beatles onwards, you know? Yeah. 
It sounds like a half-hearted argument to me that it's not that bad. And then we know that John apparently suggested they produce a Christmas single, um, which didn't happen. All we know coming out of this meeting is there seems to have been no action. So I think that whatever John proposed was rejected because we do have a many years from now, Paul's point of view, or at least Miles's point of view, that we think that Paul probably weighed into, which was that Paul just saw this as a maneuvering tactic on John's part. And this is something that the other three did not want. Because here's the thing is that this meeting is on the 8th or the 9th of September. And then he gets the call like two or three days later to go to Toronto. And it's on the way to Toronto that he says, I'm going to quit the band. And so if they had just all agreed that they were doing another album and they had agreed with John, then why is John talking about quitting? I think that he didn't get his way. I agree. He didn't, and he didn't get the reaction he wanted. Right. That's interesting too, is that that may have been one of the reasons for talking about the myth of Lennon McCartney. And we know that Paul was apparently subdued. And so if that was meant to provoke a reaction, he didn't get it. Yeah. So I, I think that that's what we can conclude because our next part is that he, you know, is the Toronto trip. Yeah, well, I tell you what, if I was John and I had said that to my spouse to get a reaction and he did not react and he said, come on, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would be I would be fantasizing about ways to hit him harder. <laughs> right, right. And so our conclusion is that this meeting resolved nothing. Which led to the next series of events. Yeah, which includes the trip to Toronto, the loss of Northern Songs, the divorce meeting, and John's interview with Barry Miles, which we will discuss in our next episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our podcast. We really appreciate all of your tweets, likes, comments, shares, and reviews. So please be sure to follow us on Twitter at ACOM Podcast, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. And be sure to check out our website at anotherkindofmind.com. To help more inquisitive students of the Beatles find us, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating or review on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 